Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day. Supposed to stay in a world built on empty ways and the lessons of all the rage. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This series two, episode 38. We're gonna start off with a quick interview with Vance from Line Cutters. You may remember that I was unable to record him. My dat was on pause at his booth. So I dedicated a good 10 to 15 minutes just with Vance. We're going to talk about line cutters. You are most definitely going to want to purchase one after this and look forward to the blog I'll do about them as well. Then we're going to move over from Texas to South Dakota and we're going to discuss the Orvis Beginner's Guide to Carp Flies, 101 Patterns and How and When to Use Them by Dan Frazier. So he just wrote... The new cart book, it is colorful. It has over 101 color images. The 101 specifically are flies. And the book is broken down into part one, meat, crayfish, worms, clams, and mussels. Part two, nymphs, traditional nymphs, and damsels and dragons. Part three, dry flies, dries. Part four, super meat, great lakes, bait fish. Part 5, Universal Eggs, Hybrids, a final note. So the book retails for $12.95. It is a good read. You can definitely sit down and read it on your lawn chair before the weather gets too cold because it is August right now after all. It's going to be 94 degrees here tomorrow. So with that, let's give you two hours of solid carp talk, where to find them, how to find them, when to find them, and specifically hooks to catch them because as of this i am now using different hooks and i hope one day to get out and go carp fishing this week so 
I'm going to stop talking. Let's talk to Vance, and then we're going to move on over to Dan. And a final note before we get started, this podcast has been brought to you by Ben Wilkinson. Ben, thank you so much for your fly purchase. You have funded the podcast hosting for the next month. Ben, thank you so much, everybody. Please give a shout out and a round of applause to Ben. All right, let's get started. All right, so um, I found out about you on Instagram. So, do you want to go ahead and just give out your social media now so people can click and follow along? Yeah, that's great. Uh, Instagram is at line underscore cutters with a Z. So, at line underscore cutters is our Instagram. And uh, we use the same thing for Facebook and Twitter. So, I've got to say, of all the, the things I was able to get my hands on at iCast, this gets more use than my Yeti Colster. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that's that's saying a lot because mine you yeah. I got a lot of use out of mine. <laughs> um, the most odd thing when I wore it to the bar the other night, somebody asked me to cut a straw, and it was like a hot knife through butter. It cut a straw. Yeah. What size? Like a regular, just drinking straw, like McDonald's size with yellow and red stripe down it. Wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So let's tell people what line cutters is. Um, cause me wearing it in my description probably won't do as, as good a job. All right. Well, well, basically in a nutshell, uh, line cutters is a, a super innovative, uh, technology packed, simple idea that basically makes it easy and safe to cut fishing line. So, uh, that's it in a nutshell, basically with all these fancy new braided lines like Berkeley Nanofill and power pro and, spider wire those lines are difficult to cut with your teeth it's virtually impossible to cut with your teeth and uh, I, I wanted just a safe simple solution i got tired of pulling out clippers and knives and things like that and came up with the idea and it's just it's a, it's a velcro kind of loop like kind of like the velcro you would use to get your computer wires all, wires all organized and then there's kind of like a hard plastic top with two blades on the left and right Yep, it's a marine grade Velcro, so it holds up to salt water, and it's an adjustable strap. So as your hand swells with salt water, if you're ice fishing and your fingers shrink, we wanted it to be comfortable. Um, so you can simply adjust the the size on the go. And if you were to hook up to a big fish and the ring got caught on heavy line, it's designed to break away uh, to prevent injury. So um, it's. Uh, pretty pretty simple design, but there's a lot of thought that went into it. About three years. Wow! And uh, what's the blade? The blade is an insanely difficult to find uh, stainless steel uh, that then is treated uh, with a titanium coating. And without giving away too many secrets, that's really the magic behind this ring, and that's why it's able to cut 16 strands of suffix 832 braid in one cut. 50 pound braid and then so you you don't just have to wear it on your ring uh, at iCast you had it on rods so the fly rod guys we can put it on I guess under the real seat or somewhere uh, people wear it on little retractors um, what else have people maybe gear shifts or the drive things on their boats yeah we've where else have you seen it we've heard some really interesting stories um, I actually just on Instagram a kid took a picture of it on his shoelaces. Um, he had it on his shoe uh, with the ring facing up. Uh, I've got a, a professional bass fisherman that mounted it on his trolling motor 
where the uh, the power cord comes out of the top. He mounts it there. He does punching, and he uses 60-pound braid. Uh, Jackson Kayak, we teamed up with them. They're putting a line cutter's ring on all their 2015-16 uh, select models that have their new seat, kayak seat, which is super exciting. And then fishing rods and even uh, saltwater guys are putting it on their center console T-top. Uh, they're zip-tying it around their center console post. So, I mean, really, you can put it just about anywhere. Yeah. It is probably one of the, if not the most novel thing I saw at iCast. There's loads of coolers down there, roto-molded and plenty of head covers, but this was the unique one. And I was sending people over from IFTD to go check them out, so hopefully you got traffic. Yeah, we we were uh, we were quite quite the spot at iCast. I mean, our booth was slammed pretty much from um, the beginning of the show to the end, and we had uh, foreign translators. We're dealing with lots of foreign distributors right now, so uh, we're just really blown away at uh, the excitement and and how much attention we got at iCast. It's been it's been just an unbelievable blast. And I saw that you guys are now in Ukraine. Ukraine, Abu Dhabi, does, Saudi Arabia, uh, Japan, um, Kuwait. It, it's been crazy. <laughs> are these people that are you know, from iCast or social media? How are they finding out about them? Believe it or not, social media has just been – well, iCast, of course, was was a big, a big shot in the arm. But uh, social media is king. Uh, just, it, you know – we, if you look on our Instagram, there's people in different languages putting pictures and sending us stuff. So uh, that, that's been a huge, uh, huge blessing of social media. And the one I have is black. What other colors are available? Well, uh, you know, we're only about a six-month-old company. And uh, we at ICAST, we showed a leaf camo, digital camo, carbon fiber, uh, a American flag ring, a custom Jack, Jackson kayak ring. So we're coming out with some really cool ring designs, but we're still in the process of kind of mastering it. We want them to hold up. We've got real high, you know, uh, quality control standards. But right now I've got pink and black in mass production. Nice. Um, and I can tell you, uh, I don't have a tan line yet from it, but it does not get in the way when I'm rowing the drift boat. So there's a plus from, um, you know, fishing guy who's at the oars. Does not get in the way at all. You barely, yeah. Once you get used to it, I'm still wearing mine. You know, I went out to the car to get it before we did the podcast. Um, it really, there's like nothing really for it to get caught on. Just that, what is that like a quarter inch Velcro strap? Yeah, it's about a quarter inch Velcro strap. And you know, when I first started wearing it, sometimes it would go to catch in my pocket. You know, when I'd put my hand in my pocket. But it, now that I've used it long enough, I, I honestly don't even. I mean, I never take mine off. I don't even know what's on. And what you can do is you can actually flip the head of the ring over so it's in your palm, and it's surprisingly comfortable. Yeah, don't even really feel like it's there. Yeah, and that's that's what some of these anglers that have expensive fish on the line, you know, potentially tournament-winning fish, um, if you don't want to accidentally cut the line, you just roll it over, and uh, uh, it's been it's just been another neat thick, you know concept, another way to wear it. Any other... Um uses i'm guessing maybe sewing crafting people have they picked up on it yet because when i was tying flies at the bar i didn't have to look for scissors at all i could just pick up my hand and just pop line and it, it's cutting the uh the nano silk line which my scissors don't really even cut 
Yeah, we started a DBA called Thread Cutters, and uh, we're expanding into the sewing industry, and we're in uh, three shops already, which is really exciting. I've got two more that are jumping on board, uh, and again, it's the same thing. You know, you can travel with these on the airplane, um, so uh, some of these quilters, cross-stitchers and stuff, they're just uh, really giving us some unbelievable feedback that it's just so safe and so convenient to have, so we're super excited. I'll be nervous if next time I go to the dentist and they're flossing me and they break one out to cut the dental floss. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> and so let's say I work in a fly shop or I own a fly shop and I want to carry these. Uh, how would someone go about getting them? And is this, do you carry, you know, do you want this up in like a fishbowl as like an impulse buy by the register? Do you want these hanging up with the, you know, pliers and, and other cutters? Well, what's cool is I, I custom uh, created this really neat silver hand display that you saw at iCast. Yes, very creepy. And, yeah. And the cool thing is when you're checking out, you can't help but ask, like, what is that? You know, and it, it says right on there, this adjustable ring cuts fishing line. So that's really, I've had two stores are on their third order of rings already, and they have that display case by the cash register. So that's really the best way to display it is by, uh, and that box is free right now with a 50 ring order, but um, you can also, we've got cool packaging that you can hang on peg hooks. It, the, the only challenge is this product has never existed in the fishing industry. So if people don't know it exists, they're not going to buy, they're not going to come in asking for it right now because we're so new, uh, but eventually that should change. How, how long do you expect before you start getting the knockoff companies? Trying to go after you. I picture uh, somebody overseas right now uh, whittling away, uh, and they're probably in process. So uh, a really good mentor of mine told me, you need to knock yourself off before somebody else knocks you off. So um, even though you know we're, uh, we've got a utility design uh, patent pending, uh, we're already finishing up uh, some modifications, and I've got two additional ideas that are going to be game changers that I think are as, as good as this idea or better. So, um, you know, we're doing everything we can to stay in the forefront of, uh, being the premier company that cuts fishing line. Nice. Maybe we, can we get maybe like a glow in the dark one for the, the night guys, Rob, that's a great idea. I looked into that. And at this point, I didn't want to have to charge our customers a premium. You know, it, it, my costs went up dramatically because of the material. But we are definitely uh, have looked into that and hope to bring that out sometime soon. All right. What's the suggested retail price? Uh, I sell them online for $12 each or five for 50. So you get a $2 savings when you buy five. A lot of my the stores that we're in are selling them for $9.99. Uh, and then like in Australia, they're selling them for $19.99. Everything there costs more. Yeah. When I was there, the cheapest can of beer was three bucks. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'd be so the front the front desk girl at the hotel made thirty like two dollars an hour. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Is it at uh, was it Tackle World? Uh, Fishing Tackle Australia, and they go by Mo Tackle on their website. Okay. They're the- I do know we have some uh, some listeners from Van Diemen's Land down there, so. They know where to get them now. Oh, it's awesome. What's what's crazy is uh, they say they're the largest fishing tackle store in the world. 
And if you find a larger store, they've got a $10,000 guarantee, which I thought was so neat. I got to go see this place if I ever get back to Australia. I want I want to go really bad. <laughs> yeah. So everybody go buy these so we can uh, get you out to Australia. That would be awesome, Rob. I, that would, All right. You got to go with me. Yeah. Vance, anything else you want to tell the listeners before I keep you from your evening? Uh, I just want to tell all the, uh, our customers, uh, and loyal line cutters, anglers, uh, we appreciate all the support. Um, I've had people going into their local tackle shop, telling, telling them they need to carry us. We picked up some stores that way. So the fishing community, I think is just so different than most of the other industries because it is a group of guys and girls that truly want to help each other out. And it's just, I, I didn't expect to feel that when I got into this business. Um, and I just want to thank everybody. And uh, it's it's made a big difference. We are blowing up and it's because of our anglers. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody go follow Vance and Line Cutters on Instagram and everywhere else. All right, thanks so much. Great talking to you, Rob. All right, we'll see you maybe before next iCast. I hope so. But not take, until then. Take care, buddy. Yeah, cheers. Thanks so much. All right, bye-bye. All right, so let's get started. We have Dan with us. Dan, where are you checking in with us from this evening? Hey, I am in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, I'm sitting in my bedroom at my fly tying station. I got a foxtail here because I was just tying some crayfish flies for a, a trip I'm guiding in a few days. Um, got my Kirk Dieter's Fly Fish for Carb book here, and I'm ready to go. Nice, and so for people that don't know... You uh, and they want to picture you in their mind. What's uh, your celebrity doppelganger? I'll say I'm the wet bandit from from Home Alone. <laughs> that's what my students used to say. Well, that's not bad. Well, I once had a pizza man, uh, about 40 years old. Uh, he delivered my pizza, and after I signed my check, he stopped me and said, "You know, you look exactly like Dale Earnhardt Jr." And uh, yeah, so I mean that creeped me out a little bit, but uh, that's as close as I've got to a celebrity doppelganger. All right, do you drive better than him? No, but I have red hair like him. Okay, so you know got- that could be useful in time flies. <laughs> yeah, I just got my hair cut today. I should have had her bag that stuff up. Dang it! Yeah, that'll yeah <laughs> that'll teach me. All right, so we're gonna talk all about carp. We have uh, the book that came out this year. It's an Orvis book. Yeah, Beginner's Guide to Carp Flies. It retails for. Uh, change back on $15. Yep. And uh, I should be getting some hours at the local shop again. So uh, I will definitely be pimping your book out to people. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's gone really well. The the um, people seem to like it. It's uh, you know available at Orvis.com and Amazon and Barnes & Noble and fly shops all around the country. And so I, I hope it's uh, it's useful. I... Um, uh, it's got 101 patterns, um, and then it it's broken down by um, trying to figure out when you should fish those patterns and how and how to present them, and you know what your carp are eating and why you'd choose this pattern, and then it tells you the recipe. So, hopefully, it's useful not just for guys who are tying flies, but also for people who've you know maybe been out and tried to fish for them a few times and said, "Gosh, this isn't working." This you know that was the intention was to kind of say, "Well." Once you've located them and you figured out which ones are are players, uh, this will help you catch more because it's um, it's all about figuring out what they're eating. That's what it really comes down to for carp. They're 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 really um, 
they're not selective to fly pattern, but they definitely can key in on certain food organisms, and it seems to change by body of water. So learning to identify their food is pretty dang critical in catching them. So that's what yeah, the, so that's how the book's supposed to work. Did you approach Orvis, or did they approach you? Because uh, yeah, like 15 years ago, if someone said, I'm coming out with a book on carp flies, people would have been like, uh, why? <laughs> yeah. And and there were the select few that fished for carp, and you know, I hooked into one and broke one off last week, and I forgot how strong a fish can be on a fly rod because I, I rarely get to fish. That was the biggest fish I've hooked in a while, and it, of course, it swam through a tree and broke me yeah. off. Um, yeah, but yeah, it would, how, how did the whole book come to fruition? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Um, uh, Tom, so so the way this works is a, it's a publishing company, like a, a regular New York publishing company. Skyhorse is my publishing company. And, uh, um, they agree to publish a book and you write it and you go through the whole editing process and you do all that. And then it gets submitted to Orvis and they decide whether or not they're going to put their name on it. Um, so the way this book came about actually was, uh, Tom Rosenbauer came to me and said, Hey, we think there should be a carp flies book in the Orvis catalog. Would you be willing to take a swing at it? I'll, I'll, I'll be your, I'll help be your unpaid agent. And I said, sure. So we went to a fir the first publishing house we went to actually did publish a book on carp flies 15 years ago and that's why they said we are not touching this cuz 15 years ago you couldn't you couldn't sell it's a uh, it's a great book uh, uh, Barry Reynolds and Brad Beefus co-authored it and it's called Carp on the Fly it's fantastic but you know, it was 15 years ago nobody was fishing for these things yeah, yeah, it was like selling uh you know, barbecue to a woman in white gloves. It just, just wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's exactly there. right. Nobody was having that. So, uh, yeah, like Orvis catalogs. I remember one year, you know, they had like trout, salmon, steelhead, bonefish, no muskie in there, no pike, um, maybe smallmouth bass. But then one year it came out with a car, you know, this rod would work for carp. And there was an outline of a carp and people were like, seriously, Orvis carp, <laughs> you're telling us to go for carp now. Yeah. yeah. And now it, and that's, it's the thing to do because well, it's it's probably the fastest growing segment of the fly fishing industry at this point because they're so available to so many people and they're so different, you know, than than anything else. And uh, like you said, man, they're strong and they're and they're uh, you know available in shallow water and they can be sight fish too. So yeah, it's really gotten to be a thing. And 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 Orvis had already published Kirk's book, which is the Orvis Guide to Fly Fishing for Carp. And um, you know, Orvis has really you know, done a good job in the last five years of trying to sort of move past the tweed jacket guys and, and, uh, um, and embrace, you know, other species and, and other sort of demographics. And I think that the carp have helped them kind of facilitate that, you know, they, they also sponsor a lot of court carp tournaments and they had a big online tournament a couple of years ago and stuff. So, so yeah, they wanted a carp flies book. And so, you know, I went to him, got a, got a publisher that agreed to publish it, um, or at least to edit it and, and decide if they were going to publish it. They always, you know, withhold the right to refuse later on, which is a nerve-wracking experience when you're, you know, ankle deep in, uh, in, in pages for your book and you keep thinking, God, they could just read this and say, never mind. <laughs> but, um, yeah, once they decided to publish it, Orvis said that, that, you know, they read it, Tom read it, and they said they'd put their name on it, and, uh, so yeah, the, the Orvis Beginner's Guide to Carp Flies was born, and and uh, now I have, I'm actually staring at right now, I've got a box of the, it's probably the greatest collection of carp flies ever assembled, because everybody who I asked to submit uh, 
uh, patterns, I had them send me two actual flies for f photographing and stuff. So I have two of each of the flies in that book sitting in a box here. I got to decide what to do with. I don't think I'm going to fish them probably if I if I have any kind of self restraint at all. I'll I'll frame them or something. But yeah, a little little trip to Michaels or yeah. I don't know what they have in South Dakota. We do have a Michaels. We've got Hobby Lobby. See. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it was cool, man. It, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun and, and it's got some great feedback. I mean, the Amazon reviews have all been awesome. There's some reviews on Google that are pretty, pretty, pretty good. And, you know, people seem to like it now. Uh, it's like anything where, you know, carp fly fishing has gotten popular, but it's still pretty small. Well, a fly fishing in general is pretty small relative to outdoor sports in the U S and, and carp's a small segment of that. But it's growing and it's fun. And I just, like I said, I just had uh, a couple of attorneys here in town that bid on and won at a TU banquet, a, a day on the water. So we're going to go chase carp for the first time with them. So even guys like uh, that have traditionally been, you know, real blue line water purists have, um, uh, are, you know, figuring to give it a shot for laughs. What the heck, right? Yeah. So let's say uh, someone is downloading this podcast yeah. and they are in the desert. They're in uh, in the Kalahari Desert yeah. and they don't even know what a carp is. Could you explain what is a carp? I certainly can. So um, first of all, there's three major categories of carp. There's the common carp, which is the one we predominantly fish for. And I'll talk about that in a second. There's a grass carp, which... Um, Get, get a lot bigger. Um, they are planted. They're, they're stocked a lot of times for weed control. Um, they eat a lot of vegetation. In fact, they're primarily vegetarians. But they are super fun to catch on a fly rod if you get a chance. Not everybody has access to them, and they're really difficult to get to take a fly. And you may need to, you may find yourself tying moss flies and stuff. But uh, uh, when you do hook them, they're real powerful, and they jump, and, and they can get 60, 70, 80 pounds. Um, and then there's a third category, which is the big head carp, the Asian carp, which, you know, there's big heads and silvers and all different kinds. Those are the ones that you see videos in the Illinois, you know, river of uh, them jumping into boats and stuff. And those are predominantly filter feeders. Um, I have caught a couple of them on a fly. One of them I'm pretty sure meant to eat the fly. Um, but, uh, uh, they're really difficult. Nobody seemed to have figured them out. They are, however, you can see from those videos of them jumping, they are shockingly athletic fish. They're probably pound for pound the, the strongest fish I've ever hooked. And uh, creepy looking. Oh, they're crazy. They got eyes on the yeah. wrong side of their heads and oh they look they, they look like uh they look like a character from Star Wars. Yeah, the mouth is like an an adult inflatable novelty. Yeah. Not that I would know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's they're great, creepy, creepy. But the one that we predominantly fish for, and the one that people think of when they hear carp, is the common carp, and it's a member of the minnow species. Cypridae. Thank you. And uh, what that means is uh, it's got bigger scales. Um, they have some genetic. Uh, they have some uh, uh, physical attributes and anatomical attributes that are different than a lot of fish. Uh, for example, they've got a um, it's called a riparian apparatus, I believe. But anyway, it's a basically a filament that connects their earlobe to their swim bladder, which most fish don't have, but 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 minnows do. 
Um, and that's kind of like plugging your guitar into an amplifier. Um, it just makes makes them uh, makes the sounds and vibrations get picked up a lot uh, a lot better um, than other fish. Um, they have taste buds that uh, extend outside of their mouth, over their lips, over their heads, on their eyeballs. Uh, some of them all the way back to their dorsal fins. Um, so they're kind of like a giant tongue tasting the water, which um, can work against a fly caster because, you know, we, we're not offering them something with taste. Uh, well, you can. I mean, some people, you know, some people scent their flies or, or buy sprays and put on their flies, but a lot of guys don't. Um, so it does mean, you know, on your flies, you may want to avoid things like head cement or fly floatant, um, because they're, these fish aren't going to charge a fly. They're going to take their time working up to it. And if it tastes, if the water around it tastes weird, they may very well avoid it. Um, they have, uh, no teeth, but they've got a pharyngeal jaw, which is in the back of their throat. It's basically just a crusher, um, intended to crush shelled things. Um, I think the, so it, you basically need to picture like, um, uh, they have a bone that's flat and actually it's kind of like two ball bearings, um, that crush together. It's got about 300 pounds of force behind it usually. So, um, it's kind of like if you put a marble on your big toe and then had a 300 pound guy stand on the marble, that's how much force they can exert. So don't stick your fingers too far down there cause it'll hurt. Um, and the good, the funny thing about that is that the, the pharyngeal jaw actually does a lot to tell us about what size of flies we should be using for these fish. Um, a, a researcher out of Brown, uh, who was one of the leading carp researchers in the country, did a study, and he found that the pharyngeal jaw is optimal um, on critters and shelled things that they were crushing that are approximately that are no bigger than the fish's eyeball. So, of course, it varies by size of the fish, but so does the eyeball. Um, and they're actually optimal at more like half the size of the eyeball. So, you know, you'll see a 20-pound carp, and you'll immediately think of, that they'd love to eat something that's three inches long. But in reality, they're going to struggle hard. If that was a real thing, they'd struggle hard to kill it in their throat because once they extend their, their, their uh pharyngeal jaw that much they open it that wide they don't have a lot of force to close it back down um until it's you know half the size of their eyeball so most of the flies we fish are like size sixes eights maybe even tens um i don't tie many flies bigger than a half inch long for them uh for carp so that's another you know anatomical uh interesting to me th thing about carp there's a couple other things that are fascinating well first of all they have that downturned mouth that we're pretty used to seeing got it's got no um teeth but it has a ton of a lot of suction power so they can pick your fly up from you know three four five inches away at times um and they do that by flaring their gills really hard and they create a, a lot of suction with that round mouth so if you're you know if you've got your fly in front of a fish and the fish gets three inches away from it and then you see a, a big gill flare there's a good chance he's picked it up they set they, they pick up things all the time that aren't food, so they're really fast at eject, figuring it out and just ejecting it, thinking it was just a stick or a rock or something. Um, so you've only got about a half a second to set the hook. Uh, thumbnail rule is set the hook early and often. If you see a movement that seems out, out of the ordinary, you see a movement that looks like you know it might have eaten your fly, gear, flared its gills or turned its head, 
pick up your fly and at the worst case scenario, if you took it away, you can put it back and, and usually you'll be okay. Uh, it won't scare the fish, spook the fish. So set the hook early and often hooks that's are free. Uh, the other thing about carp is, and I think all minnows have this, they have cells on the outside of their bodies called ACSs. And basically they're, an, it's a, it's a, it's an amino acid. It's a cell that's kind of like a balloon and it covers their, their body. And those balloons get popped when there is uh, what they call manual damage, meaning uh, something handled them, whether you picked it up or it slammed into a rock or something like that. It pops a bunch of those cells and it releases a pheromone into the water that alerts the rest of its shoal. Carp are a, are a community. They're one of the only fish we fish for that function in communities. They function in shoals, at least in, in freshwater and saltwater. We do fish for a lot of shoaling fish, but... That means that they work together and they move in groups, and that'll alert the rest of the group that something's wrong. So if you've caught one, you are you have that stuff on your hands, on your waders, and on your fly. You should very much rinse that stuff off, and you may want to move a little ways down the bank before you fish to the next fish. The one you'll know the the other fish have been alerted in that they usually don't run, but they'll stop any heavy feeding behavior. They'll sort of sink to the bottom and just kind of sit motionless. And those fish aren't going to do it. They're not going to eat a fly until they, until they get back active. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's some of their, of their physiology. Um, and I think they're beautiful, man. They're golden and, and kind of silver. They've got bright orange tails. Oftentimes they've kind of a herringbone pattern to their scales. At least the common carp do the mirror carp don't, but that's a different, different, uh, genetic strain. Oftentimes some kind of olive on their head or their backs. And, uh, yeah, they can be really pretty. They vary in color a lot by the body of water they're in. Um, but they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool fish. As far as sizing goes, um, 99% of first-time carp anglers way overestimate the weight of their fish because they've never caught a fish that big before. Um, a five-pound carp looks really small because you've seen so many pictures of bigger carp. But... Um, um, they vary in size. The average size in the U.S. is probably something around seven pounds. Um, they will uh, grow up to 40 pounds, but those are very rare. Uh, a carp grows about a pound a year. So you're not going to see as many as many 20-pound fish as you think because it took 20 years to grow a 20-pound fish. And uh, I've, I've never seen a baby carp. It's like baby pigeons. You just never see them. Yeah, it's almost a mystery. Like, I'm sure that somewhere there are like large schools of them and they're and they're filter feeding or eating microinvertebrates or something, but you very rarely see a small one. And I uh, I've never heard of one that was under a pound that's been caught. Uh, the smallest I've seen are about two pounds, and those are so rare. Um, but on the other hand, part of the reason they're rare is you're sight fishing into these things, and a smaller fish is harder to see in the water um, and eat smaller things, I suppose, too. But you don't see babies a lot. They are a huge forage source for all of our other game fish. Um, like I said, they're minnows. And uh, the research shows that, you know, bass and pike and, and – uh, um, you know, walleye and basically all of our predatory species uh, in bodies of water where carp exist, the, the small carp become a very um, substantial, if not the significant, the, the, the main part of their, of their forage, their diet. Because these fish aren't that fat. They're strong. They're not super quick. 
Um, and basically, I mean, their defenses in numbers have tons of babies. Some of them are probably going to survive and then eventually get big enough. You can't get eaten. Now, I will say that, you know, a pike, for example, can eat a fish that is uh, a third of its body weight. So, you know, a 15 pound pike will eat a five pound carp. Um, but, uh, you know, 15 pound pike aren't that aren't that uh, common. Um, so yeah, they, 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 they range in size from, from obviously they start real small, but they can get, they can get large, very large. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the physical parts of them. Behaviorally, they're super interesting because, you know, this is an introduced species, meaning it originated in Asia, it originated in China. Um, it was moved to Europe about 400 years ago by monks raised for food. Uh, where, and in Europe, it's still a prized food fish, and it is the prized sports fish in Europe, um, especially in the, in the UK. In the 1800s, the U.S. decided, actually it was an outcry from citizens, they wanted these fish bad. And, and so for a while, it was considered the most successful stocking program in the history of the U.S. Wildlife Service. Um, these carp were sold uh, in New York uh, you know, like whitefish is, I mean, they were sold, you know, carp was a, was a food source and a, and a sport fish. Funny, it, the carp was actually introduced to Colorado before the brown trout was. So, um, um, but the reason that the introduction was so successful is that, now this is what makes fly fishing for these guys fun. They are generalists in that they can eat anything, but as a, local population they become specialists in that they focus on eating what's most abundant and sort of ignore the rest so that means in south dakota i catch a third of my fish on grasshoppers my carp because we got grasshoppers like you wouldn't believe and And they're sucking them all the time yeah they come up and eat them off the surface um and um and in lake michigan they chase down these big gobies up three four inch bait fish look like sculpins and, um, uh, and, and in Portland, it, it, on the Columbia River, they only almost t- t- exclusively eat clams. So a goby pattern doesn't do you any good. All it does is scare fish on, uh, in the Columbia. They don't even recognize it as food. They're, they're focusing on clams. And a clam pattern in Lake Michigan doesn't do much good because it's not as big as a goby like they'd expect. And here, both of those would fail some of the time because the fish are eating on the surface. So... You really need to try to learn your local population and say, I know they could be eating anything. That's why this, the introduction was so successful. But the reason the populations do so well in every individual body of water is that whatever the food source is that's there, they can adapt to it and they become very specialized at eating it. Um, it actually changes their lip shape in, in places that are gravelly and rocky where they're eating clams and stuff and digging in the bottom. Their lips will get huge and puffy and scarred. And in other places, a lot of mine, I catch them and they have these really thin, when they close, when it closes its mouth, you, you can't, it doesn't have that distinctive carp downturned circular mouth. It's very thin lipped um, because they're not, they're only rooting around in soft mud or eating on the surface here. So it's, it's really, they're really fascinating. And that's part of what makes them so, so challenging is you kind of can't just say, I get asked all the time, Hey Dan, what's a great carp fly? And it's like, man. It took me 183 pages to try to tell you how to figure out what right, the right fly is. It just depends. Where are you and what are they eating and how do you know that's what they're eating? And So anyway, um, 
yeah, that's if I had to describe the carp, that's physically what it looks like, and then sort of behaviorally, that's that's how they act. Have you traveled to these different spots? To I know you went out to Oregon. Yeah, I've fished uh, the Columbia River um, three times. Um, I go out there and fish with John Montana, who runs Carp on the Fly, is his blog. Um, and then this last year, actually, it was me and John, and then Cam Mortensen from Fiberglass Manifesto came. Um, uh, Justin Watkins, who goes by Wendy Barrel online and has a has a pretty cool blog that has a lot of carp content. And uh, why do do you not have your own uh, when, pseudonym? When, when Justin started his the, the Pizza Man, <laughs> it should be Dale. When Justin started his uh, his blog, that was back in the old days when we were still scared about having our identities online. Okay. And Wendell Berry was his favorite author. So he went with Wendy Barrel. And uh, I, half the people in the world, more than that, 90% of the people probably think he's female because uh, of the name he chose. So um, I, have, I have been known to hashtag a picture with Justin. Uh, I slept with Wendy Barrel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he gets so mad about that. And then uh, Trevor Tanner, uh, McTagg Tanner, um, who runs flycarpin.com came out and, and all five of us fished it this last spring, which was really fun. So I fished there. Um, I fished the great lakes, um, uh, which was awesome. I fished up on Beaver Island and fished the great lakes. Um, I've obviously fished around here a bunch. I fished in Minnesota. I've traveled to Nebraska to fish for them. Um, I fished for them in South Carolina. Um, so yeah, I've done a little, not as much as I would like. Um, because when I do travel, I end up fishing for other species usually. Because something I can't find here, like redfish or, or trout or something. But um, but yeah, I've I've tried to hit most of the really sort of storied waters in the U.S. I still got to hit the South Platte, which is sort of the epicenter of of carp fly fishing. Uh, uh, hang out with all the homeless guys under the bridges. That's right, man. Go stand in a. Uh, I got a. Uh, Barry Reynolds sent me a picture of, of him standing in a shopping cart, and he called it a, a, a South Platte Flats boat. He's standing in a yeah. shopping cart cast into uh, tailing cart, so it's kind of... Yeah, when you, when you get over by the railroad tracks, man, it's there's like needles in the water, and <laughs> it's like fishing out here in the 80s. Catchy, huh? And just Yeah, just dudes all under these overpasses. Yeah. And, and they're totally cool. They're just sitting there watching you, <laughs> well, minding seen, their own business. They've seen so many carp fly fishermen now, I suppose they got to be getting used to it, because that's a yeah. Um, yeah, right behind, there's Discount, Fly, and Tackle on Santa Fe Avenue. The most ridiculous amount of time material for a place that small. <laughs> and right behind the shop, there's a great car pole. Yeah. And they have sail bins. They have, like, steamer trunks. Really? And and I just I emptied them all into the floor. I was the only one there on, like, a Tuesday in February. And I went through everything, put it all back, and, and walked out of there with, like, a trash bag of you know, like dollar bin stuff. It's fantastic. That sounds fantastic. I got to make sure to hit this place when I when I get there. Uh, um, I do intend to fish it, although I'm told that it is. I mean, they've been fishing for tra- for carp in the South Platte for probably 20 years. Guys have been, and remember, I mean, these things, like I said, they grow a pound a year, so most of those are old. Are the same fish, and they yeah. are getting. It is getting really difficult. They are becoming quite educated um it in fact uh there's a presentation a a way to present a fly that works really well for carp that we call the drag and drop 
That's what I use. That's yeah, great, man. You cast beyond the fish and then lift your rod tip so that your fly sort of skitters along the surface. You can identify exactly where it's located relative to the carp, and then you uh, drop your rod tip and let it sink just a few inches in front of the fish. It's great because you can steer the fly and everything. But on the South Platte, they've had to stop using it because the carp now run from things that are falling through the water column at them. They've been hooked too many times. Oh, wow. Yeah, so <laughs> I got to get there before that's shot. That and it sounds like uh, they've got done a lot of cleanup, and you know, thanks to Carp Slam, has raised you know tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of awareness about the South Platte. So they've got a lot of cleanup. They're starting to catch trout and small leaves and all kinds of stuff in that water. And uh, and what, wasn't somebody uh, riding their bike like two or three years ago when someone did a back cast and. <laughs> hooked them and the guy like broke his arm and collarbone yes yes that did happen you have to be really see when you're carp fly fishing you can end up in some strange places like trespassing on golf courses to fish ponds and uh um you know fishing in city parks and stuff and it's funny your biggest obstacle becomes the humans who first of all want to come stand around you and see what you're doing and really i mean they've probably seen a river runs through it but they don't understand a that doesn't mean they understand a back cast. They always scream. And my daughter almost hooked a woman yesterday. She's four. The, my daughter, not the woman. <laughs> uh, she was catching uh, largemouth and green sunfish. Yep. We were sight casting them. Yeah, she did like a 20-foot back cast. And this woman was just walking and just like screaming. <laughs> yes. I just wanted to say it's barbless in case yeah. you're worrying. Yeah, don't, it should be like a small piercing. You'd be fine. Um, well, and then the other thing that they love to do is they like to walk right up to you and say, what are you, what are you fishing for? And what? Meanwhile, the six fish that you'd waded within fifteen feet of have all all you know swam away, and you can say, "Well, n- nothing now." Uh, thanks, lady. Thanks, lady. Uh, yeah. But you know, it's also it's actually super fun. I mean, there's a lot of kids that you know. I've I've held carp up for kids a lot of times to come over and see them and touch them and let them go and and uh, so you know that part's all cool. I was actually fishing, we have a, so this is Sioux Falls, which means we have a waterfall in town, and there's a big park around the waterfall, and I was fishing down there once, and uh, hooked a fish that was quite large, and uh, I was having a little trouble landing it, it was pretty heavy current, it was taking me some time, and a crowd gathered, and uh, right as I got the fish to the net, he just came unbuttoned, and uh, there was an audible groan from all the people behind me, (laughs) and I thought, was like, oh, God, you felt like you just let down everybody. Um, yeah, so we fish for them in the tidal basin in D.C. where the cherry trees are and the monuments. And you'll get a crowd of 40, 50 tourists, and they want pictures of you and pictures with you. And <laughs> yeah. It's the last thing they expected someone to be doing down there. It is. It is. And, and you know, you'll hear all kinds. I didn't know there were trout in here. No, they're not. They see you with your fly rod. Uh, yeah. Or I get a lot of, I fly fish. And I was like, Really? Yeah, but that means, you know, they have three times and they did it on trips to, uh, you know, Breckenridge and stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 you end up in a lot of weird spots, man. Fishing below sewer treatment plants and all kinds of. Yeah, that's us. So speaking, so there's three places around here. We get the tidal basin. Uh-huh. It's pretty hard to find them. Is that brackish water? Brackish, yeah. See, that's 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 awesome. I didn't I, 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 until recently. I didn't even realize they could exist in brackish water. And then I heard about you guys fishing them, and some somebody in Delaware, I think, is fishing them in some brackish water too. Yeah. And then they go up four. Well, they used to go up four mile run in the winter because the sewage plant was warm, but they don't do that anymore. And then we have the Sino Canal, 
which goes, I don't know, 130 miles. And we kind of fished just the stretch in D.C. I, I had a falafel in my left hand the other day and my eight weight in my right hand. And <laughs> these guys were working and they're like, hey, man, there's a big fish down there. I thought it was a catfish. And I just dropped my dragonfly nymph down and sure enough, this carp comes up and sucks it in. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm under the trees <laughs> with picnic tables. There's a girl in an Eno hammock to my left. <laughs> Um, and I've got a falafel that's dripping tahini sauce and I just totally blew the hook set. And if I had hooked it, what am I going to do with my, you yeah. know, my falafel? That was like the highlight of my day was being able to go to Georgetown and get a falafel. And I'm right behind Dean and DeLuca. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of places should, should I and listeners be looking for? Yeah. What are, what are carpy locations? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, carp. Um, there's a few considerations that you want to take. I actually just took a trip to, we went to this massive reservoir in South central Nebraska that looks like it could be a real carp destination on satellite. And I met up with, uh, four sort of three other big time carp guys. And, uh, if there is such a thing and, um, and we fished it and none of us had ever fished it before. So I, I had to think a lot about like, where are we going to find these things? Um, and, you know, there really are a few considerations that are really important. The first thing is, if you can't, even if the fish are there and you can see them jumping or cruising, um, if you can't see the fish feeding, um, you're going to have real trouble. So the first thing, the most, you know, in a perfect scenario, you've got real good water clarity. Um, and you, But even if not, you want to think about places you get some visibility. And that means you may want a place where you've got some elevation, you're up off the water because you can see down in it a lot better, or the water's nice and shallow, so you'll see the fish's backs or their tails when they come up to feed. Um, uh, they like to eat, uh, you know, they, they're eating small critters, so they're going to be in relatively rich areas. They like to eat a lot of nymphs and small crayfish. Um, it, you know, it depends on location, obviously, but but it it's they're eating... They're, they're eating small living organisms, and uh, so you want to be a place where there's, you know, a lot of those. If you're in a place that looks pretty devoid of life, you probably aren't going to find a bunch of carp feeding there. Um, but, yeah, someplace with clarity and elevation. And then the biggest consideration, or, or in my estimation, the biggest consideration, once you've taken those two out of the, of the equation and said, well, I think I can see them well here, is water temperature. They carp feed year-round. And I catch them. Uh, there was one point where I caught them for like 26 straight months. But um, they obviously feed more, a little more when the water's warming. But what's actually most important is relative water temperature. So if you can find water that's three or four degrees or five or seven or 10 degrees warmer than the surrounding water, you're probably going to find carp. And uh, some good ways to find the, that kind of water is um, shallow, weedy bays tend to be pretty good weedy or muddy bays because they warm faster from the sun than the surrounding water. Uh, warm water discharges uh, usually are pretty good. Um, uh, if you are fishing a big body of water like like they do in Lake Michigan, the wind becomes critical. You want it to be in a, in a bay that the wind is blowing into because it pushes the warm surface water into the bay and concentrates it as it sort of funnels it down. And then pushes the cooler water out so that those bays will be seven or eight degrees uh, warmer than the uh, surrounding water. And that'll, that'll attract fish to come up in them. 
you know, any place you can find where the water is going to be a little warmer, the fish will move into to, um, to stimulate their, A, to stimulate their metabolism, but also there's just more life in those shallower, uh, warmer uh, areas. There's a lot more nymph life, a lot more plant life. Um, so they'll come up into those. Um, some other considerations are if you're fishing moving water, think about how where a trout would be. It's going to be a little more pronounced with carp because, you know, they, they prefer slack water. They prefer very slack water, but they're not going to be in the currents, and they will feed along seams. Uh, they'll nymph behind rocks just like a trout will. If they're feeding on the surface, which they, they, they can do a lot of moving water, they'll look for back eddies and other soft water to uh, that collects the food. And then that's work, you know, it's effectively the best because you can see them and you can wait to them. It's usually warmer and, uh, and you know, a shallow sand flat is, um, can be really good. All right. So, uh, let's see, we talked about carp eat good. What makes a good carp fly? So we talked about, you know, the different locations. Is it colors, the motion, the material, the size, what it's supposed to imitate? If you were going to like, so we're, we're going through the book. We've got meat nymphs, dries, super meat and universal. Is there any kind of consistent themes in there? Yeah, yeah, there, there, there are. Um, first of all, unless you're fishing the few places where they've become serious bait fish eaters, you're going to want to stay away from big flies. Um, and by big, I mean something bigger than maybe an inch and a half. Even an inch and a half long fly is pretty big. Primarily, these things are going to be eating nymphs, um, whether it's dragonfly and damselfly nymphs or mayfly nymphs or stoneflies or whatever um they're going to be eating small crayfish and i don't mean you know i don't mean these like three inch the ones you're going to boil right with some corn yeah exactly there's no nothing nothing anatomically correct about my my crayfish flies because a crayfish is you know when it comes out of the egg it's like a millimeter long and then it molts about 11 times through its first year and grows and grows and grows. And then it turns into what, you, and then it looks like what, you know, we think of as, as crayfish. Well, in the juvenile stages when it's molting and, and it's smaller and it, and it, it shells soft. Um, and especially if it's a molted, if it's molted at the time and it has almost no shell, it's very vulnerable. And that's when the carp like to, to, to eat them. So the perfect trout or carp fly has, is, you know, maybe an inch long. Um, it's probably tied on a size eight hook, very stout hook. People use, use like egg hooks and stuff. It is made of sort of soft, supple materials, no need for shellbacks or claws or anything along those lines. Um, it, it's probably impressionistic in that it doesn't, you might, you're probably better off not looking ex- you know, exactly like a crayfish. Um, if it looks kind of like it could be a small crayfish, but it also could maybe be a nymph and, and heck, maybe it's a worm. I mean, if it, if it has these sort of impressionistic qualities, um, you're more likely to have that the fish will give it a shot. Um, and the real important consideration is weight. Uh, you know, you got to get the flies down, but on the other hand, these fish are quite spooky and you can't, you can't splash them. You know, when we were in, in, on the Columbia, we fish, uh, it's probably, pecker deep water and so you want to fly the pretty yeah so you know in the deeper water when we were like waist deep uh you want you want some weight because you got to get that fly down and it can't drift far because you need to know where it lands um 
And then if I take those flies that have pretty heavy dumbbell eyes or, or maybe dumbbell and lead, and I fish them in my water here where most of my carp I'm fishing very shallow because my water's murkier, um, the splash will scare them off every time. So here I use like bead chain or sometimes I'll just fish like a, a soft hackle um, that's that's got no weight, just the weight of the hook and, and slow sink it in front of them. So weight is probably the most important variable. Um, but as far as what it looks like, yeah, you know, you want to stay in that half inch range, inch to half inch range. You want it to look real buggy. Um, the soft, different variations of soft tackles are very uh, effective. And then probably the most famous carp fly out there is John Montana's carp hybrid, which is just a, a soft hackle with a chenille, a red chenille tail coming out of it. Um, and, you know, John described uh, are, it by... Are we supposed to burn that tail or are we supposed to leave it as is? Do we like singe it like a San Juan? Yeah, you, you can. Um, I don't think John actually even does, but... Um, John will tell you that he's a hack at tying flies. He just whips out as many of them as he can, and when they come apart, he just forgets about it and moves on to the next. Um, but, yeah, I would singe it. I singe mine, <clears throat> but I don't think the carp care. Um, but that's basically just a soft tackle with a sand, you know, piece of chenille uh, off the back. And, John, like John says, it just looks like food, and I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, it could be a worm. It could be a clam with its – clam's – Stick a, a little pink tube out to filter feed. Um, I'm gonna take a look at my clams here. See what they're. So mine are all berry. I got an aquarium now. Yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all with their gastropod down. Oh, they are. One of them are sticking out. No, yeah. Well, you'll have to keep an eye on them. When they stick those up, you can uh, you can emulate them. Well, they better get to work cleaning the water. <laughs> How is the water? It's good. It smells a little bad, but uh, are the clams new. The clams are from today. Ooh. There's a, a mussel I got from the pet store, which I feel bad about. But uh, today I added dragonfly nymphs, damselfly nymphs, one itty-bitty helgramite. I learned that big helgramites just eat everything. Yeah. Um, I got... But wait, when your itty-bitty helgramite becomes a big one, is it just going to eat everything? I'll just take it back or something. <laughs> he, he's the size of a caddis. I had a, a caddis hatch today. Whoa! Uh yeah, about every day. So I got I have about ten midges like dead on my windowsill because they're like size twenty twos and they're opaque. Yeah, and I I don't see them, so I can't catch them. Like the caddis flies, I come in here and I look around for them. I just look up. the The previous owners, I don't know what you call this, Carolina Blue, is my office. Yep. So the caddis flies stand out fairly well. Yeah. And then you, uh, but yeah, I, you'd be surprised, man. The mayflies, the stoneflies are aggressive. They're like linebackers in there. They are knocking fish out of the way. Really? They're moving. Yeah, they move the clams. Wow. Uh, it's it changes what you, know, what you think that nibs do under you know when they're yeah they're, they're not just a rock when you flip them over. That's interesting. I, that is interesting. So what uh, what do you do with the caddis when you catch them? I just uh, put them in a little like Tupperware and take them out back. Oh okay. Oh. Uh, there's there's two creeks near us so. I'm sure they'll find somebody to love. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I wasn't yeah. sure if you like were trying to like get them to lay their eggs back in the water. or. No, I'm just worried the mosquitoes, because we get mosquitoes in the house. Oh. Because there's a couple holes in our screen. Uh -huh. So hopefully my mosquito fish will eat any larvae that do develop in there. Yeah, so what fish do you have in there? I have a Mad Tom, uh, one eastern mosquito fish that's full grown. And then I caught a couple little you know baby fish today with my bare hands. These things are... 
maybe a centimeter long. So I, I don't know what they're going to turn out to be. Interesting. It would be like Christmas watching them uh, develop. Yeah, and I've got some uh, freshwater hydras, so little jellies in here. Very cool. And then um, I also have a lot of scuds, and they're fast. Are they? I, I tried filming them. It's They're crazy fast creatures. Really? See, I would have never guessed that. How big is your, te- is your aquarium? 10 gallons. You just go to Amazon and do 10-gallon uh, fish tank kit. Yep. It comes with, it was $64. Yep. It came with the tank, a cover, two light bulbs, uh, chlorine drops or anti-chlorine drops, anti-ammonia drops, fish food, filters. And I just had to add water. I went to the pet store, got a bag of gravel. And then just take my daughter out collecting all the, you know, a couple days a week. That is awesome. We got a, I've got, we've got a 10 gallon tank. I've got a 10 gallon tank that my daughter used to have fish in and it's not being used right now. But I like this idea of collecting stuff to put in there. That's that's not bad at all. It's fine. I can sit here just all afternoon, just, which I never get. I can't really do because my child's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, as, as soon as I, I got like 20 clams today, and it's not easy finding them. So I don't know how the carp do it, but uh, obviously the ones that were alive, as soon as they landed. So I, I use a Gatorade jug, yep. and I just put everything in there and then swirled around and dump it in. Yep. As soon as the clams landed... You know, ten out of the twenty just just dug in and burrowed. That's and they're they're right up against the glass. I have a helgramite, not a helgramite. Uh, I do have a helgramite, but I have a cranefly larva named Fraser uh, Cranefly. Yeah, oh, that's good, Fraser Cranefly. I like that. And it it moves around this tank nonstop. Really? Um, it it knocks over everything. Yeah, it's like two and a half inches long. So and it's just constantly just you know I, I every you know I Arnold the muscles right here. The clams are there. Everybody's got like a firm place, but that crane fly, you never know where it is. It just pops up in different locations. Well, I had no idea they were moving around so much in there. Well, I knew that. Yeah. It, I knew dragonflies and damselflies swim a lot. They, yeah, I don't, they disappeared somewhere. They're like under the rocks. I have a mad tom also, yep. which is like, you know, full grown catfish at two inches long. Yep. Uh, but when we were flipping over rocks today, you couldn't tell the difference between a fish and a crayfish when they would dart away. We we're in, you know, three inches of water. Yeah. And uh, just hard to find. Could not find it growing up, you know, five-inch-long Helgramite. I wanted to show with my daughter's little classmate, playdate friend, and her brother and her mom. And they're from the West Coast. And they're like, yeah, you go to the rivers and there's nothing living there. Right. Yeah. Which I, I, from listening to the Open Fly podcast, that's, I guess, why salmon evolved to go out to the ocean. Oh, really? Because there just wasn't all that invertebrate life in the rivers to sustain them. Interesting. She's like, yeah, you would never find like the beach. I mean, clam just clamshells everywhere. Yeah, and and five inch long mussel shells and yep. We were, we were collecting pawpaw, which is a a fruit that looks like a squashed tennis ball, and you pop it open, it's like a banana flavored custard. Really? And they just grow all along the sandy shores. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was a fun day out there. We saw a, a lizard, probably about eighteen inches long, which wow. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. And this is all right outside of like the nation's capital. Man. There are Blackhawks flying around us. <laughs> you can see the planes coming in from uh, National Airport. That's insane. Yeah, that sounds like a fun day, man. We were upriver yesterday with a client. So my, I had this client. He calls me up. He got my card at the local shop where I'm going to start working. And he's like, "Hey, my, I've got this friend. He's got a house on the Potomac in Great Falls. And he, Great Falls is these houses have like their own zip codes almost." Whoa. And 
we go to his friend's house and I'm just like, holy crap, this place is immense. Like the drain from where the water came off the gutters, the drain to go down to the river for the rainwater is made of slate. Oh my God. Like slate roofs are crazy expensive. And this is just like slate sheets. Wow. So then we get down to the river and we walk upstream like half a mile. And there's a house that, I mean, like three story windows. Like, I don't know how they clean them. This place was, it, it was the size of like, you know, a, a hotel. And then we just walked in the river. We only got one small mouth, but uh, we saw one juvenile bald eagle. Nice. And it's crazy. You're out there. We didn't see a single person yesterday. And it's all within 10 miles of D.C. It's, it's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. It's nuts. But but no carp. The carp are upriver. There's the old Potomac Canal. Not Potomac. It's Potomac, which is how George Washington. He built a canal on the Virginia shoreline to skirt uh, a drop in elevation, which was all rocks. Oh, really? And they'll get in there. But I haven't. I was supposed to go there two weeks ago with my buddies. And the wife said I, she had to go to a baby shower for my cousin. So you didn't. And uh, I couldn't go. I, so I have all these like Helgamite flies I tied up for the smallmouth. I'm just sitting here. Well, you, you'll get to use them. How is smallmouth fishing been? Um, I rarely get up that way. So, you know, you get them every now in the brackish section. Uh-huh. But uh, I don't think we've caught one down there in a couple weeks. You know, you'll get a, a largemouth, smallmouth, and a striper within 10 minutes sometimes <laughs> at the sewage outflow. That's crazy. And everything eats a San Juan worm. <laughs> yeah, that's... Some some guy was busting my chops on the Orvis blog. I wrote about catching a snakehead. Yep. He's like, oh, you're the guy that uses San Juan worms to catch stripers and use boga grips. And I'm like, well, you know what? My response was, not everybody wants to touch a fish for their grip and grin to show, you know, their wife that they weren't at the strip club. That's right. And then, you know, what's wrong with a Palolo worm for for stripers? Why is the San Juan any different? I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, and you know, there's really it's really weird the way people react to the to the San Juan and and uh, you know, I mean, I've heard uh, I've heard guides call it bait fishing. I, I had one guide in Colorado tell me that it, it that there weren't any worms in the water. I find so many when I'm looking. I'll just like today I was just taking handfuls of sediment. And sifting through it for clams, yep. and there were like four and five inch long annelids in there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's worms everywhere. Well, and worm flies are a big deal for carp too. You know, the trouser worm that that uh, Tanner invented is a fantastic fly. It's a worm that stands on its head and and moves like a worm would in the water, as opposed to sort of just tumbling. Um, so it's good for like still water and stuff too. But uh, um, but yeah, it's it's amazing. There's like a there's like a prejudice against worm flies and, and egg flies too, which is another big carp fly. You know, an egg fly. I don't know why the carp eat the egg fly. And they don't like of all the what I've read is they'll, they'll like gut carp to see what you know scientists. They've never found a fish egg in that. Never. Way. Nope. All of, but it's just like yeah, it's it's colorful. It's round. It just looks appealing. Yeah, something to, to taste and give it a try, I guess. Um, um, I also think that they present real well. I mean, they sink real slow, so the carp has plenty of time to figure out it wants to try it. Uh, so that may be part of it, but, but man, I know guys that are fishing in like deeper water that is dirty and they can't see the fish and they have a bubble trail and they'll put a strike indicator on above an egg and where the egg will be suspended just off the bottom and throw it in front of the bubble trail where the carp's feeding on the bottom and then just watch their indicator. And if it, if it wiggles, They'll catch them like that relatively frequently, um, but something about that egg fly—I don't—I don't know what it is, but boy, they, so, they like no 
no stigma against using a uh, indicator with carp fishing? No. Or is it kind of like you, you got to – it's not going to spook them? Well, very, very rarely do people use the indicators because you're almost always sight fishing to these things. Um, but the guys who do uh, – who, who are fishing for them uh, where they can't see the fish will use indicators. Um you're probably safe to use them from getting spooked because when you are using them, the fish is probably going to be deep enough that it won't spook away. If it was shallow water, if you were fishing them in like a foot of water or two feet of water, I would avoid an indicator if I could possibly help it. Um, um, because, you know, fish, you know, carp specifically are pretty dang spooky. And, uh, um, and if you can sight fish to him and just watch their body movements and decide that he, you know, swung his head to the side, I should set the hook, you're better off, I think, than running an indicator. But, you know, if you can't see the fish or if they're in deep water or, you know, I know guys who go out and just nymph runs like they're fishing for trout um, and they'll pick up carp that way. And Yeah, we people get them at uh, it's Gravelly Point by the airport national. If you're from here, it's national. If you moved here, it's Reagan National. They renamed it. Ah. And they'll be swinging clousers for stripers at dusk and end up with carp. Yep. And we're talking fast. Well, I'm like, water with stripers want to be. That's fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the carp will be it will be everywhere. <clears throat> and and if they're there, if they're up in that fast water, they're they're eating something pretty serious. There's a, there's a reason for it. So yeah, they'll become uh, predatory in that case. I mean, geez, that's how they are in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes is nuts, man. So the zebra mussels got into the Great Lakes and and. It's clear water now. I mean, glassy clear. Um, you can see 40, 50 feet to the bottom in the Great Lakes. And the zebra mussels, obviously, is an invasive species. And then 10 years ago, through ballast water, this other species was introduced called the goby, which looks kind of like a sculpin. And um, it's got, like, fixed pectoral fins, and it's wide at the front and narrow at the back. Real, real sort of ugly-looking little thing and it darts around lives in the rocks and it feeds on zebra mussels um and then the carp which were an introduced species put there on purpose but still you know non-native and they have evolved to eat the gobies so it's like this entire alien food chain because the gobies are one most abundant you get fish up there man it's nuts you're you know i've I've got i fished on beaver island and there are guys fishing all over the great lakes and in all the different lakes and you got these fish that moving in a pack so most predatory fish are solitary. Now you've got a, a shoaling fish that's become predatory. They're moving in a pack. They, they may average 15, 20 pounds in this group and uh, of seven or eight or ten fish. Um, and when a goby darts out from the rocks, they'll peel off. One of them peels off and hunts that thing down and slams it against the bottom. So when you're fishing it, you can see them coming from 100 feet because it's clear water and they're big. That's crazy. Yeah, and you make a long cast, you know, when they're 60 feet away or whatever, and let that, that big three-inch goby fly settle to the bottom. And when that lead fish gets there, you start stripping. And one of them will peel off and come slam that fly, and uh, and then you're off to the dang races. I mean, that in that kind of cool water, they are uh, perfectly capable of taking you to the end of your backing. A big one is. Um, and... Uh, but it, it's it's a it's a crazy sight, dude. I mean, it is just mind-boggling. The uh, you know getting to see that because they become they've become so voracious up there. It's just it's just insane that they'll eat these big flies. So that's one of the exceptions to that 
you know, inch, inch long fly rule. The flies in the super meat section of my book, which is about the Great Lakes and about uh, some other big giant reservoirs where they've become meat eaters. Um, they're chasing things like clouser minnows and, uh, and they'll run them down <laughs> and slam them. And it's, it's the sight to behold. The first time it happens to you, you're like, you just kind of can't even believe it. And then you, sl- you, you stick that fish and he blows up. And that means the rest of the shoal freaks out. So now all of a sudden you've got, you know, 140 pounds of fish in a, you know, 50 feet from you in, in shallow water that all blow up at the same time. It just rips a hole in the, in the water and, as they all flee. And then, you know, you try to land that one. And when you get them landed and released, here comes another batch because there's just everywhere. There's groups of 10, 15 of them just patrolling down the bank when you get them find the base that they're in uh, trying to spook things. They're also eating big craze in that in that water too that's a place where they've evolved to eat bigger things or, or not evolved adapted and uh so they'll eat a big you know two and a half inch long crayfish that's that's uh you know rust colored and looks like you could you could steam that sucker up and uh and rip the tail off but uh yeah man it's crazy and they do that you know the great lakes is an example it's not the only place any big reservoir or any place where you know there's tons of bait fish around um They'll uh, they'll they'll start to eat them. Hell, I've seen them. I've seen them, and this is pretty rare. But I've seen them uh, uh, busting bait fish like stripers. So they they'll group up underneath them and force the bait fish ball to the top, and you'll see it start to pop off, and and then the big carp backs will start to sort of slash through it, and you can throw you can throw streamers into that and drag it through. It's a rare occurrence, but if that's what the primary food source is, and that body water that's what they'll learn to do it's crazy man it's bananas it is bananas uh, and they just let one fish like will peel off like before they don't all like like five of them don't go for one no it's like they're working together one will peel off and eat it that's crazy. and then he kind of falls to the back of the line and the next next guy up and they just it's the velociraptors man yeah, they're like it's weird because it's literally like hunting in a pack they're not competing with each other they're kind of helping each other. So they're moving in a group and they're flushing things. And then whoever happens to be nearest to whatever's flushed, that's kind of his. And he'd go and eat uh, it. I'm guessing that there's an efficiency when they're swimming in a pack that they're, you know, like like bicyclists, they're probably drafting off each other. Yeah, I think there's some of that drafting. I also just, think you're just tending to move more more objects, you know, get more things to dart out of the rocks and, and yeah. when you get a bigger group, you know, because – like I said, if they're twenty pound fish and there's ten of them, that's two hundred pounds of fish, and wow. they're moving, a, they're pushing a lot of water, they're making a lot of vibrations, they're uh, uh, they're they're they're, uh, they're covering a lot more uh, bottom area, and yeah, it's it's just it's crazy. Now it's not every day, you know, as many fish as you can catch because the trick is you got to find them, you got to get them, get there. Some days they won't come up on the flats and it's, it's, that's all about water temperature and wind direction. If the wind's blowing onto the, into the bay, they'll come up. And if it's not, they won't. But when they do, it's, I mean, some of the numbers that people have put up on those trips are, uh, I mean, you know, 20 fish over 20 pounds in four days kind of thing. It's just, it's just preposterous. Um, but that's part of what makes them cool. I mean, geez, in one season I caught a, a 15-pound fish on a dry fly, an 18-pound fish uh, tailing like a bone fish, and a 13-pound fish nymphing. And 
they were all carp, but man, if carp didn't exist, I'd have had to travel all around the world to try to get, and probably still would have never got fish that size on those, you know, different situations. So yeah, man, it's super unique. It's, it's, it's crazy. I'm totally addicted, bro. I mean, I've passed up so many other opportunities to fish for other species because there's carp in the area. It's kind of slightly insane. Well, in fact, this reservoir we went to in Nebraska, the uh, the tailwater is a premier uh, uh, trout tailwater. They grow and no one there fishes for them. They're all hunters. Yep. Nope. Yep. It, it it's the this is the McConaughey Reservoir and the Ogallala yeah. Lake below it and the uh, and the the north. It's the North Platte comes out of Cheyenne and. And then goes down the spillway and is the North Platte, obviously, down below. The, the biologist down there, when we were researching, told me that they grow trout at the rate of an inch a month, which is about the capacity for trout to grow. And so these guys are talking about like 10-pound rainbows that they pick up down below in the, in, the, uh, in the tailwater, and nobody fishes it. I mean, geez, we were there on a Saturday, a beautiful, warm Saturday, and we didn't see one one other fly fisherman in the entire in tailwater and the reservoir. And of course, the reservoir also has wipers and pike and and all kinds of stuff and great carp fishing. Used to be a striper fishery, but they they killed those off because um, they were eating the walleye. How about that? Um, yeah, we need a walleye fly now. <laughs> well, let's hope that that trout pro Ronnie Ketteridge isn't listening because he'll go snag them off the reds. Oh God, I hope he's. Is he still around? I don't know. Oh, yeah, he'll snag them off the reds and throw them on the bank till morning. Yeah. What a guy. What a guy. I'm glad he got busted. It, it, that's one good thing that's come out of social media, right? There's a lot of guys trying to get famous for fly fishing online, but um, this was cool. It was pretty cool to see a guy get, get busted uh, because everybody sort of came together and figured it out. That was cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, some of those fish were impressive, though. Yeah. They're the same ones. <laughs> yeah. He just like changed his outfit. Yep. <laughs> God. That's... All right. So let's see. Uh, question list. So what does a carp not eat? Would you say see, there, there's like, you know, great white sharks, snakeheads. They're apex predators. Yes. Would you say a carp is like the apex scavenger? Uh, it's a gr- that's, that's a fantastic way to phrase it. Yeah. I would say that uh, um, there are places where they're you know, like in the Great Lakes where they're certainly are predatory, but, um, normally here's, here's the way I, I sort of, here's the analogy I've used with people. Imagine if I gave you a rope and I said, all right, you need to go catch a, uh, a lion with this. And there's the lion over there in the grass and you'd take a bunny and tie it to it or a pheasant or a uh, any a piece of steak or anything and you'd throw it in front of him and he'd be there alone and you'd drag it in front of him and hopefully he'd eat it and unless you're a dentist in wisconsin then you just shoot, you him, just shoot him that's right um well actually no you drag something until he's off the preserve and then you yes. Shoot him. Um, yes now with carp it's more like i said okay there's a herd of buffalo eating grass here's a rope go get one to eat what you tie on the end of this rope and see if you can catch them. So, you know, you throw a big clump of grass in front of a buffalo and drag it away, he's probably just going to keep eating the stuff that's in front of him. Um, you, you're going to have to, you know, get the, get the, um, 
that grass to stay in front of him right there and have him for some reason think it looked better than what he was eating and give it a taste before you'd you'd have a chance and there'd be a bunch of them around. That's sort of analogous to the difference between most apex predator fish, which is what we usually fish for, are the more the apex predators or at least predatory fish in the water, um, and a carp, which is really the apex forager. They are finding what's really abundant like a giant clam bed and then they're coming in and just slowly working their way across it, kind of grazing their way across it oftentimes. Um, or, you know, they're moving in a group, and they're close to the bottom. They're moving really slowly, and they're sort of foraging around for nymphs. If it happens to be water, it has tons of, you know, damselfly nymphs. Or crayfish, baby crayfish, if it's a, a real rocky place with moving water. But either any way you slice it, they're kind of, they're kind of doing like the buffalo and grazing more than, than the lion and, and chasing something down and trying to kill it. Except for, you know, unique circumstances like I talked about at the Great Lakes. So that means you need to not move the fly as much. It's harder to know when the fly's been eaten. Uh, the best guys, the best fly fishermen I know for carp don't, don't strip their flies hardly at all. They settle the fly in front of them and then they wait for that carp to, move, to, to notice it and come up and eat it. Um, they might give it a very slight strip but they certainly don't pop it away from them and hope they'll chase it because the carp has probably surrounded itself with something that it eats and it doesn't need to really work hard to, to eat anything. Um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I would see them in terms of, of apex predators or, or like I would say, call them foragers because they're, they're just grazing out there, man. Um, and it, it, you know, keeping that in mind can actually help a lot because uh, you don't, you don't want to make them work for their, for your fly. There's just too many other options for them. Um, they do like, you know, uh, they will, I hope I didn't mischaracterize it, they will move on a fly. It's, this isn't like they're accidentally picking it up, but they're not going to move far. They might move, you know, in Portland they move, if you've got a fish that moves three inches for a clam, you know, you yell to your buddy, holy crap, you should have seen that take. He was, this one was just ridiculously aggressive. You know, where I am, they'll move six inches or a foot, and they'll, and they'll come after something that's kind of crawling away from them. Um, but they're never very rarely, at least are they going to chase down something that's, that's really going, um, except for on the great lakes and that's, or in some of these big deep reservoirs that are real sterile and all they have, the only option they have are bait fish. Um, there they'll run them down. Speaking of reservoirs, one of the first times I ever saw, well, there was always the girl in the Potomac that used to bow hunt for carp. Yeah. That was never, never know if that was true or not. But the first time I ever heard about like fly fishing for carp. I think it was Fly Fishing the World, ESPN, Saturday mornings, and they're on some reservoir of the Bighorn River. Oh, yeah, dude. They kept it, hoppers up there. Yeah, so they're throwing uh, like either terrestrials or like seed puffs, yeah. and these things, would you're at the surface feeding, and then you hook them, and they go straight to the bottom. They're in a drift boat, like a clack of crap. They would straight down like into the guy's backing to the bottom of the reservoir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, these are so when you get in a place where that's especially deep water where they can't access the bottom, you just go to the wherever the wind is pushing all of the debris, and you'll find carp up there feeding on the surface. And they're eating hoppers. They love to eat cottonwood seeds. Um, I don't know why. Probably because there's like blanket cottonwood seed hatches in places, um, and there's just so much of it that they all come up and start eating it. They like to eat mulberries. Um, that's big here. Yeah. Yeah. You find big on the canal bushes, man. They just destroy a mulberry fly. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you're in deep water, which, you know, I actually have a few deep water reservoirs. See out here, we have, you know, the Missouri river runs right through South Dakota and it was a mile wide and a foot deep when Lewis and Clark got here. 
and it's not that way anymore because we've put two or four massive giant release dam bottom release dams, um, and uh, and created these huge reservoirs and then tailwaters. Um, and the tailwaters are fun to fish because you can find the fish tailing and all that stuff. Um, but on the actual reservoirs proper, if you get to the deep end, uh, the carp will still be there and they can't feed. Well, there's nothing to eat on the bottom. It's sterile down there. So they'll either be like two or three feet below the surface cruising around looking for bait fish and you can throw bait fish flies at them. Or they'll go to the windward side where whatever debris on the surface is getting stacked up from the wind and they'll rise and just sit and eat you know, hoppers by the millions and pieces of, 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 you know, cottonwood seeds and, and other fluff and that kind of stuff. And, uh, that can be super fun. I mean, it's really exciting to hook a fish that big on a, on a dry fly, but it's really frustrating too, because they're still, even when they're doing that, well, first of all, they're not built for eating on the surface. Their eyes are sort of on the wrong side place. And, you know, they, they, they look all awkward and, um, but, uh, uh, they still aren't going to move a long ways for that fly, so they'll miss them, or you'll drift right by them, and it takes a number of tries usually to to um, uh, to really get them uh, uh, sort of honed in or figure out exactly where you need to have your fly to get them. But once you do, I mean, man, on Monday I was out with my mom. My mom's learning to fly fish, and she loves fly fishing for carp. And we went out to this little uh, uh, spillway and, and shallow creek that I live by. And it's got a lot of carp in it. And we were catching bluegill and, uh, and small bass and stuff. She was practicing uh, setting the hook on her uh, uh, dry fly takes because she, she still was in that. Uh, my mom grew up fishing bait under bobbers. And she was in that the bobber goes under and you yank that sucker back and then pull in a catfish or whatever it is. So we had to learn a little subtlety because – it was it was not working on the small bluegill, but anyway, right as the sun was setting, about twenty carp just came up, and started eating midges off the surface, and um, they would not eat my. I had a small hopper on that I was using for the bluegill, then they ignored that. But I put on a size sixteen parachute Adams, which is not a small midge pattern, but it's close enough. And then I had to work those that pot of fish for maybe twenty minutes before I got one that the drift was right where a fish moved over about three inches and ate it, and. Um, and then I had a real problem. I had a tiny hook and a big mad fish on the line, and uh, I did land him. But I, that hook was pretty dang straight by the time I got it out of the fish's mouth. Um, so, so speaking of hooks, uh, you're flipping through the book. There's a lot of like niche hooks that people are using in there. Are those the shape and size that just make it easier to tie the fly on, or are these also chosen for the strength that's not going to bend out and break? Mostly, it's it's the it, well, it's kind of all three, but that strength is really important so here's the problem you got giant fish eating small things right so you need a hook that's short shanked it's got a wide gape so you can get a pretty serious chunk of flesh in there because this i mean you 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 experienced you've experienced it when a carp is taken off and he's mad he i mean i've seen a melt click and paul reels i've seen you know they will it will get they'll get you to your backing fast they'll they'll they beat you up pretty good so you need a hook with a gape that, that grabs a lot of their, um, um, you know, their mouth and then something that's relatively stout so it doesn't straighten. And that's kind of a tough combo, especially for dry flies. But for any fly, it's kind of a tough combo because 
you know, you tend to end up getting longer shanks than you want when you get a hook that's got enough gauge or as much gauge as you're looking for or as much um, uh, gape width as you're looking for. Because um, you're trying to tie this fly is only three quarters of an inch long. So there's a lot of egg hooks that are used, a lot of caddis uh, larva hooks that are used. Uh, Carp Pro used to have a line of gaper hooks that uh, may be coming back. We're out of right now. We, we may bring them back. It's that we get from manufacturer in Japan, but they're actually a good place to look is at the um, uh, European bait hooks. They're they're expensive, but they're just perfect in that their shank will be a half inch long. Their gape will be almost as wide as the shank. They'll be uh, they'll have a nice gauge to them. They'll be heavy hooks, and then probably most importantly, there's a special tempering where. If it's, if it's not tempered enough, they'll straighten them. If it's too tempered, then they become brittle and they'll break them. And these guys in Europe, especially in the UK, have sort of perfected these small hooks um, that are tempered to the right, um, to the right strength where uh, they don't straighten or, or break off in the fish. Now, uh, those Carp Pro Gapers, we sold thousands and thousands and thousands of those hooks, and I only ever heard of two of them failing. Um, but uh, and that was that was basically a, a an offshooter. It was part the design was partially taken from some European bait hooks. But uh, yeah, the the hooks are are tough. Um, and you know I don't I'm starting to sound like you know everything's got to be perfect. You can use the hooks you've got, but you'll straighten light wire hooks, and it's harder to tie a sh- a, a a small crayfish on a long shanked hook and so you know you'll sort of run into the problems as you as you use them but um um that shouldn't stop you from trying what you've got i ha- frankly a heavy um uh a nymph hook is probably going to be be okay um it, it's just it'll help you sink it down too yeah exactly it's heavy exactly to help you sink it down too so um there's a lot of hooks that are being used out there and and it's not rocket science but the more you fall down the rabbit hole, the hook becomes, you know, you, you get more and more sort of selective about what hooks you want to use. And, and you start searching around because, um, there is, a, it, it, it is a unique way that they feed and that kind of calls for a unique hook design, I think. So, um, so yeah, like, uh, you know, w- when we fish out in Portland, those are size 10, uh, hooks, uh, um, uh, hybrids that we're fishing usually eights maybe probably tens and that's a pretty small hook to hook a 25 pound fish in current um that's going to rip you to your backing and and you know we're all using pretty serious equipment i mean i've got a a seven weight helios one and um and my tibor backcountry um that has a sealed drag system and i've got it locked down pretty good and i've got usually fishing audex tippet and those fish will still take you deep into your backing a couple of times. So you can imagine how much strain that's putting on the hook, you know? Yeah. So that, let's leave that into uh, the, the gear. Yeah. So rod, length, weights. Yeah. What should people be throwing? Like flexes, like soft rods, stiff rods? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so my personal setup, like I said, is a seven weight. Um it's a tip flex, so it's a stiffer rod. Um, it's sort of a fast action rod. Um, it's and you know 
it's a seven weight, which is kind of an odd in between size, but it really is a balancing act. You know, you're trying to delicately present these smaller flies. Um, and on the other hand, you've got to be able to handle a big fish and the seven is sort of right there in between works well for me. Um, uh, some guys fish eights and that's fine. You can fish sixes and that's fine. A five, five weight starts to get really hard to, to handle the fish and a nine is going to be, you know, you're going to have, it's just less delicate. It's going to get harder and harder because, um, you're probably going to end up waiting to within 30 feet, 25 feet. You're going to try to sneak up as close as you can. Um, I fish a nine foot. I think a perfect rod would actually be nine and a half feet maybe. Um, because in close quarters, you can end up doing a lot of dapping for these fish. You can get close enough if you stalk real stealthily or if you're using cover on the bank where you can just lower your fly in front of them. Um, and the longer rod gives you more control to do that and more control over ply placement on the, you know, 15 and 20 foot casts too. Um, you know, you don't really need a short, you know, on the other side, the other side of that equation is a shorter rod would give you sort of better leverage and more authority to handle a, a larger fish. Um, and so that's why I go with a nine instead of like a 10. I mean, it's kind of a trade off. Um, that seems to be like. That's like the name of the game in carp fishing is trying to find the, the, the trade-offs between small flies, delicate presentations, and big-ass fish. The seven seems to work good. Certainly start fishing for them with whatever reel you've got laying around, your click and paw reel, but eventually you'll, you'll if you start fishing for these seriously, you'll want to buy a sealed drag, uh, not only because you're in a lot of muck and mud and sand and that kind of stuff, but more importantly, because unless it's a really good click and paw drag system, uh, these can these fish will can and will break them. Um, you will you you know you fish for carp enough, and especially if the water is big enough where they have room, and you'll start to see your backing repeatedly, and um, that can break a, a click and paw pretty easily. I've seen I've seen reels blow up and back spool, and and guys trying to trying to hand uh, uh, trying to trying to land a fish you know with, with with not on the reel anymore. It's a it's a real disaster. Um, you're going to want a large arbor so that you have uh, extra backing. Um, you probably will never be brought to the end of your backing, but the fish that does take half your backing is going to be one you don't want to lose because you ran out, you know? So uh, <clears throat> so I fish a, um, uh, yeah, my, my, my reel's a T-board backcountry, and I've got a hatch that, that I use too. Um, and those are good. Uh, they may be overkill. But, you know, this, I don't know, probably half the gear I own is overkill, so I'm not going to get picky now. Um, the line that I use uh, is, um, well, Orvis had a great carp line. Orvis really understands of all the rod manufact line manufacturers, and uh, they really understood that carp fishing wasn't bone fishing. So everybody else just took their bone fish taper and, and called it a carp taper. And bonefish tapers are for casting a lot farther and into wind and stuff, so they're, they're they can be splashier and heavier than when you want in this close quarters fishing. Um, and Orvis had a great carp line. I, I, last I saw, they were out of stock. I don't know if that means they're still manufacturing it or not. I hope they are. Uh, I'll let you know when I get back in the store. There you go. Uh, yeah, because it's a good line. And and uh, um, but um, you know any uh, um floating line will work 
but like I said, if you can go with something that's a little bit of a more delicate taper, that's going to let it, you know, not be so splashy when you cast it, that's that's good because, you know, you will not be making unless you go to Lake Michigan. You're not making 60 foot casts for these fish. The eats are too subtle. Uh, I, I'm a pretty good caster and pretty accurate, and I probably have made 50 or 60 foot casts where the fly ended up being where I wanted it to be in front of a carp. But my God, I don't know how rare. I don't know if I've ever hooked a fish at that distance because I don't know how to tell when they've eaten from that far away. So, um, so you know, you're going to get close. So a little more delicate. Uh, they don't seem to be leader shy and. Um, I would suggest that's because they have not been fished. Most of them have not been fished for very much. Perhaps in the South Platte they've become leader shy. I don't. I don't know for sure. Um, but that's why I fish. You know, a one X tippet, leader tippet, um, and you know, I know guys who fish odd X and two X. Three X is getting a little bit light, um, but you can do it. The one I caught on the dry fly the other night was on five X tippet um, because I was fishing for bluegill, and it. So it, it can be done. It's just takes a lot more work to, to land your fish, takes a lot longer. Um, and so, you know, no need to put yourself through that. Um, are we talking fluoro versus, uh, mono yeah. knotted knotless? Are you buying these? Are you building them yourself? Yeah. I'm, I'm just flat out buying nine foot tapered, uh, mono leaders. If you're fishing somewhere that's like real rocky bottom, fluoro probably makes sense because of its abrasion resistance. Um, and, uh, but you know, most places like where I'm fishing, you know, it's, it's mud bottom, it's weedy, but it's, there's nothing there necessarily that I got to worry about a lot of nicks. So mono's a hell of a lot cheaper. So why not use mono? Um, and, uh, it, it may screw with your sink. You're going to want to be careful and, and watch and make sure that it's not floating a little bit. And, and then there, thereby create sort of a pendulum effect as your fly sinks and it pulls it closer to you than you think. Um, it's just something to pay attention to. Floral, I suppose, wouldn't have that issue. Um, but I fish mono, and most of the guys I know fish mono. I have at times switched to floral when I've been. So I keep talking about the Great Lakes, but that's one place that's just really rocky, barren bottoms. And that was a good place to have some floral on. Um, and uh, Portland is the same way. It, it, it looks like the, the, the underwater topography of the Columbia is a lot like the surface of the moon, it looks like. So um, flora would be a good idea there, although John fishes mono, but he catches so many fish, it doesn't matter if he breaks a few of them off. Um, and, uh, so I'm, um, and then what I'm doing is I'm tying um, my mono leader, um, and, and I'm you know just putting 12 inches of tippet on the end of it, to uh just to protect my leader really so that during fly changes and stuff um because I, I don't like buying leaders um in uh the knots i use i actually use a double surgeon i need to get away from that that's where my whenever i have a failure that's where it is um uh, mcteg tanner does a bimini twist that seems like overkill he swears it's easy once you learn how to do it i've watched his video on flycarpin.com and it doesn't look easy to me, but uh, anyway, um, I, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm that knot, you should use whatever you're most comfortable with. Um, and then my knot to my fly is a uh, non-slip mono loop knot, um, which it, I use that for any of my bottom flies. My, my you know, if I'm fishing to tailing fish, um, it's a great knot. I love that knot. Easy to tie, lets the, the fly move a little bit. 
if you do strip it or as it sinks, it falls naturally. Um, and it's got, you know, a lot of strength. Um, when I'm fishing the dries, fishing dry flies, I'll use a, a an unimproved clinch knot. So I, it's, you know, clinch knot or fisherman's knot. It's just, you don't go back through the loop the last time. Um, I actually read somewhere that that has a higher breaking strength than uh, a better breaking strength than the improved clinch knot. Now, yeah, Rosenbauer's mentioned that with their, his Engstrom tester there you go. from the Orvis podcast that the improved clinch knot is not as strong as you think. There you go. Now, what I will tell you is that the improved clinch knot is self-tightening and the unimproved is not. So um, I'm okay on carp with unimproved because there's not a lot of like head shakes and things that I'm afraid are going to kind of wiggle the knot. It's just them pulling. Um, because normally when a carp fights you, it's going to eat and then it's going to make a long run and it's going to try to stay deep while it does it. Now, sometimes they'll, they'll jump, but very, very rarely. Um, we have them jump in the winter time out in four mile run. Yeah. Is that just like the theory that they're just cleaning their gills out after sucking up all that mud? Yeah. That's what they're doing is, is taking mud and, and parasites out of their gills. The funny thing was I'd never done this and this is a very small sample size of one, so don't take it for fact. But when I was in Portland, where the water's nice and clear, I had a fish in front of me that jumped like five times. And the sort of common uh, thought is, if a fish is jumping, he's not eating, so don't worry about him. Go find other ones. But I thought, well, it's shallow and clear. Let's see what he's. Let's see if I can find him. And I walked over there, and that fish would jump, and then he would go right down to the bottom and start tailing again. Um, and which kind of made sense, I guess he's cleaning his gills out while he's eating. Um, so maybe jumping fish while well, you don't want to just cast to a fish that's jumping cause he's not eating at the time. He may be after he's done going right to the bottom in the spot where you've located him and eating. So it might be a place to look for fish. Um, but they don't jump when they're hooked all that often. I mean, it, it happens. I, there's a video on Instagram right now that, uh, Larry Dostal, um, put up from the trip we just took to Nebraska and, and Trevor's hooks a carp. It's funny, man. He's, he's waded up to his armpits and he's dapping these fish that are feeding on the surface within nine feet of him. And, uh, he, uh, he sets the hook and that fish jumps just straight out of the water. I mean, I don't know, two feet straight out of the water. So it's, it's effectively over his head at that point. Cause he's waded so deep, but, um, yeah, normally it's a straight pull and they run and they pull really hard. So the reason they can live in dirtier, warmer water than a lot of fish is because they process oxygen super efficiently. Um, so they can have less oxygen in their water and survive. And that means for a fish that you're fighting is that he doesn't tire very quickly because he's processing oxygen fast. And if you let him just sit and bulldog you on the bottom, they'll recuperate very quickly. So when they're bulldogging you, you got to get you got to get that fighting butt into your hip and really move that fish. Um, because if they sit for too long, you're just, they're just going to make another run. They'll be fully recharged. Um, so anyway, that's my, that's sort of my, my gear setup. And then as far as other things I take with me when I go fishing for carp, um, I've got a, I got a great pair of Sims, um, mud boots for, for wet wading that work awesome in like mud flats or, or places with stickier bottoms. Um, I think they were actually probably designed for like the mud flats, uh, saltwater mud flats, but they work just as well in freshwater mud flats. Um, I usually just wade in a pair of quick dry pants because it's summer and why not? Um, unless you're worried about leeches or herpes or something. 
um, then you may want to wait her up. It's it's the estrogen here in the water. The estrogen? Oh, yeah. So not only do we have all the cattle from Maryland, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Virginia that all washes in. So they, they give all the cows the hormones to make more milk okay, and everything. Yeah. yeah, so they piss out like five gallons at a time. Uh, but then you have all the water treatment facilities. Now, they take out like the corn and toilet paper, but they don't take out the pharmaceuticals. So every woman that's on birth control that urinates excretes out the estrogen that's not absorbed, and that goes directly into our water. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we not only have all the male fish have got ovaries, but it's also affecting the bivalves, so the clams and mussels that are supposed to be hermaphrodites. Yeah. They're leaning more towards just being all female. Whoa. Which in the long run is just going to basically crash the population. Do your fish really have ovaries? Yeah, intersex species. No way. Yep, male bass. Wow. Yeah. So I wear waders. It could be 98 degrees out. And I'm still, when we're going to the outflow, I, like today we were in, we were kind of the middle section of the Potomac. It's clear. It hasn't rained in a while. Um, so I'm like, I'm only going like shin deep. But like when I'm down at four mile run I, below the outfall, I mean, I don't want to grow boobs. There's no gynecomastia that I want to have going on. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I don't have to wear a bro. Like that means Orvis is gonna have to like sell the, like the bat and kill bro down here, <laughs> the man's ear. Yeah, it's um, yeah, and you'll find yourself in some stank nasty water. So do be be careful and and uh, you know watch for needles and rusty things. And I mean, because you, you know you'll find yourself a lot of places. Rusty spoons. Yeah, rusty spoons and things to step on. The other thing is, um, um, you know, you got to be careful. Of, about because you, you will be able to fish a lot dirtier water and so you know things like um different parasites from uh uh fecal runoff from cattle and things like that can be something to be concerned with so if you have any open sores or anything i would wait her up and, or if you were going pecker deep as we said you don't want to i don't want to get called Pe- pecker doesn't deserve an explicit you got to use like Something profane. Yeah. If you own cock deep, I don't want to get a call from Rob that says, dude, my scrotum's the size of a basketball because I was waiting for carp yesterday. What did I do? <laughs> I feel like that. Well, fortunately, he passed away, but that guy in Vegas. Oh, yes. <laughs> he used to carry his around in, egg, in a milk crate <laughs> with the uh, upside down hoodie. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. His was like 120 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't want to that guy because uh, that that's a, that's a, a well documented side effect of carp fishing. Um, not really. Um, but yeah, so, you know, you will end up some, some nasty stuff. So, you know, watch it. But if you're in, if you're in relatively clean water, I wet weight a lot. Um, and then it's really, you can go real, real simple. I mean, cause you don't need a lot of the junk people use a net becomes, okay. So here's a couple of things that are, you know, a net becomes really critical because you're landing big ass fish and your little trout net is you may have some trouble with the bigger fish. I've got this Fraybill fold-out. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. So basically, it's got two arms um, that are connected by like a, the plastic equivalent of bead chain. And that's what your net, the bag of your net is all connected to that. And when it's, they all collapse down around the handle. So it just is like, you know, this foot-long um, tube and then you unfold it and those two arms open up and they create this triangle shaped net and then the handle also extends 
And the reason I have that is because I do wade and move around a ton. So bigger nets get to be a hassle. Or I mean, nets that are just constantly open are, are a hassle if they're bigger. Um, but on the other hand, when I hook a fish, I want to be able to net the bigger ones. So this has a pretty big, uh, pretty big bag and pretty big opening. Um, the other thing that I would, you know, that, that you de- definitely will eventually end up getting is, um, a lot of guys carry digital scales because we, the carp fly fishing guys tend to talk in pounds instead of inches. And, uh, and so a digital scale is really nice. Just once he's in the net, just hook to your net and lift it up and see what he weighs if you got a big one. Cause you'll want to know if you got a 19 and a half or if you finally broke the 20 mark. Um, but that's a sort of unique to carp fishing. I don't know a lot of, a lot of fly fishermen that carry digital scales around except for the carp guys. We either scrotums after they've been in the water. Exactly too long. Right. Well, that's why you need that big ass net bag too. You carry your scrotum back. Um, and then, you know, pair of nippers. Uh, pair of forceps and, and a box of flies and you're set. You don't really need. I, I've gone the pliers route now. I'm using P line pliers yeah. that have a cutter. Yeah. And, and then also, um, my line cutters. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best things I got from iCast. It's a ring on your finger. Yeah. It's two surgical blades. And we were using it at the uh, beer tie the other night just to cut, you know, you can cut thread while you're tying just to like, you don't have to look for scissors. Interesting. That sounds really pop cool. It. So what I'm using Very right, convenient. what I'm using right now is a it's like just forgot the company that made it. It's got an orange handle on it, and uh, it sort of looks like a hemo only it's uh, it's straight and 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 a little bigger, and then it's got a cutter built into the right at the you know the very nook of the of the uh, uh, pliers. So, um, but yeah, you're moving bigger hooks, and by the way. Um, you can debarb your hooks if you want, and you don't have to if you don't want to. These are carp; cool. they're super strong. Are super. It's a hundred dollar copay if I get one taken out at the ER, so I I debarb. Yeah, and that would be debarb it to protect yourself and the people around you. But as far as the fish go, if you don't debarb them, they'll be the the fish is going to be all right. Um, I will say that if you don't debarb them, it's a hell of a lot harder to get it out of the fish too. So you know, I do I knock mine down, um, but. Um, uh, I know a lot of some guys that just don't, and you know that's it's fine. They're carp. I will say this about them because it takes a little while to get over our prejudices. They're still fish, and yeah, they can survive for a long time out of water, and yeah, they're pretty tough, and yeah, there's a lot of them, but it's still an animal. So handle it with respect. Put it back, you know, quickly. Remember that every minute that's on the bank, it's suffocating, and. Uh, um, and you know, put it back and let it let it uh, uh, give it a chance to to um, to be all right. I, I, you know, even when I first started uh, catching these things, I still had a little of that old mentality of like, oh, I hate these fish. I don't know why I fish for them, or or I, I don't know. It was weird, but I, I probably I certainly didn't handle my fish as delicately as I do now. And and so I would you know encourage people to just treat them like you would any other animal or any other fish that you caught. I, that was way off tangent, but that's kind of my gear setup right now. Um, and you know, it varies, but, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. You can start with anything that you got. That's the good thing about these fish. They're everywhere. You can start with whatever you got your nymph, your trout nymph box. It'll work. I mean, eventually you'll find yourself tying specialty flies, but you put on a big old stone fly nymph and go sink it in front of the face of a carp that's eating, that's eating something nymphy and he'll eat it. Um, um, and, uh, 
and you know, then you're off to the races. Then it'll just be a matter of honing your your equipment down because you're catching so many fish, you want to catch a bunch more of them. Absolutely. All right. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before we wrap it up? Oh man. Um, when are you going to come out here and fish with me, Rob? Man, I need to take a road trip. I, I need to go get some pheasants on the side of the road out there. Oh, we got them. We come on. The- I remember that from high school. For college, I drove cross country. It was like every 10 feet, there's a dead pheasant on the road. We've got so many pheasants, it's unfreaking believable, man. You should hear it on opening day from pheasant season. For pheasant season, it sounds like a fucking war zone out there. There's the profanity I'm talking about. Yeah, buddy. Uh, it's just, they just just blow the place up. There's so many. Let's put it this way. You don't go walking around out in the deep grass um, without wearing a lot of orange that that, that opening season of uh of opening day of pheasant season, but uh, it's fun. And, and they were just put out there for for the hunting because they're all from Southeast Asia. That's right. Yeah. Um, yep. They were brought out here for hunting. They've basically displaced. This is why I think it's funny when we get South Dakotans who don't like the quote unquote invasive carp, because our state bird is a invasive species that we planted and displaced a bunch of native species, and we're the only state in the union that hunts its state bird. So how about that? Yeah, you can't shoot a cardinal here in the Commonwealth. Well, you mean. You could, I, right. I probably wouldn't, but yeah, they just, they brought them out here for hunting and those things just took off and now they, they still plant them, but then unfortunately they displaced the chuckers and the prairie chickens and stuff, which we still have some of, but not many. And, but man, a ringneck pheasant is a beautiful animal. Whew. And then, I've got a rump, rump of one right over here, man. It's the colors in it are just nuts. Yeah. They're, it's crazy, man. These things look like clowns, but they're also, they make some fucking awesome carp flies those soft tackles those those feathers are great soft tackles yeah you come out and shoot some birds we'll catch some carp and then uh i don't know go check out the local breweries and is the uh i had ringneck red at the brewery i don't have my t-shirt anymore back when my brother and i were young we thought it was cool to have have microbrewery shirts yeah in the in the 90s yeah and now all he drinks is bud light what yeah i don't know what happened to you went the wrong direction yeah. See, back in the 90s, all I drank was, well, actually, I was pretty fancy. I drank Rolling Rock, Green Bottle. Don't know oh, if you've yep. heard of it. Uh, 33. <laughs> I don't want you to think any more of me, Rob. Uh, and now I've, I've graduated to the to the microbrews. But no, Ringneck Red is gone, unfortunately. Do you still have your shirt? That thing's probably worth a bunch of money. No, the wife probably tossed it. Ugh. I have like eight shirts, and they're either snakehead tournament shirts or lunker hunt shirts. I got it. I cast the lunker hunt shirts are the softest t-shirts, and I went back this year and I'm like, hey, do you guys have any of those shirts? They were ridiculously soft. And he goes, he's like, man, I got five duffel bags. Take what you want. Wow. So I got them in gray and black now. Yeah, I can't. I can't sound like it was great. It was a good time. I, I wish they did it in a dry county. Why? It's just too much partying. I'd get so much more work done if there wasn't the boozing. Yeah, that's not the first time I've heard that it's 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 drinking first, business second a lot. Of- at 3 o'clock, like, the kegs come out, and I'm trying to, like, just interview people. The socializing at the, the happy hours is great. It's just not really an opportune time to put a microphone in someone's face and be like, hey, so. That's right. So it's, it's more of like, hey, I'll give you a call in a month. We'll set something up. It's fun. Yeah. Had a good time. Well, and plus, yeah. It was Orlando, though. It was pretty hot, wasn't it? It was, but we were inside the whole time. Of course. One time I was really outside, was walking to, like, the Costa Party. Oh, yeah. How was the Costa Party? It was good. We sat outside, and um, 
like the first, I don't know how many people got in, got a Costa gift bag. It had the Yeti Colster, not the Colster, the, the little Rambler in it. Yeah. So my, the, our house guests who just came over for dinner, the kids were drinking skim milk out of it. I'm like, I don't think that's what it was made for, but. <laughs> oh, wow. It, it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of beer, so Aaron Block, um, she put out a post on Facebook about High Life. Mm-hmm. And my, I sent it to my wife. She's like, oh, we got to get that for our housewarming party. And nobody drank beer, so we got like a ton of High Life cans. Oh, do you? Yeah. I do like some High Life. I've been drinking, well, because we, we're paying two mortgages. We bought the house, so I haven't bought craft beer in a while. Yeah. So, Are you going to sell in the other house? Uh, I think we have a contract on it. Woo! Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. We went from two bedrooms to five. Uh, see, that's good. Well, that's because of all the big podcast money you're making, right? I know. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyway, um, let's see. Uh, what else? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just encourage people to get out what about and shop. Polarized glasses? you got to have a good pair oh, of polarizers. Thank you. Big, big hat. Dang, that's your most ex- important piece of gear is your polarized glasses. Because, like I said, you got to see these fish to catch them. So, the best sunglasses you can afford. Um, I fish some Costa. I fish, co- I wear Costas. Uh, the Smith Optics are great, too. I mean, it just depends on your preference, I think, taste preference. Um, I like the amber lenses because I can, I think that the, the yellows uh, help to increase the contrast. And I'm fishing dirty water. So, a lot of times I'm looking for like, lines that indicate there's a fish there and stuff um like a, a line that i eventually turns into me realizing i'm looking at the a fish's back but yeah man you want good sunglasses and then baseball cap or something uh also i i you know i end up with my my hands up over i have i wear a, a baseball cap but i also put my hands over my uh my brim my cap oftentimes just to seal out as much light as i can from my periphery it seems to help uh and then i wear a buff and i know like, I see pictures of dudes online with, like, no shirt on, but they're wearing a buff. I don't think they understand exactly why the buff exists, but it does really, when you have one, it really does a good job of, salt guys swear by them, and that's where I started wearing them was well, from fishing for redfish, but it does help keep you cooler in the sun because it keeps the sunlight off you. I'm also a ginger, so I, you know, I got two choices, skin cancer or a buff. So yeah. I'm, 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 you know, I got my, I wear long sleeve shirt and a buff and just remember when you're out waiting for these things, it, you know, you're going to end up exposed to a hell of a lot of sun. And sometimes it's even more sun than you're used to when you're fishing for trout or something that where you've got some shade and some trees and stuff. Cause you're getting it you know, for the carp flats, you're getting it from both angles. So, um, yeah, I try to cover up and keep sunscreen. Now I keep the sunscreen off my hands cause of the taste of sunscreen, well, hell the taste of sunscreen. Dermatone. Yeah, taste the sunscreen on the fish or on the fly mate could actually attract the fish. I don't know, but, uh, but dermatone is it's scentless. It's fly line safe. It's fly safe. The dermatone angler. It's in a little blue tube. REI sells it. Good. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's awesome. That, uh, that's, I grabbed a bunch in, in Florida. That's what I'll, I have to try. I'll have to try that because, um, you don't want, I mean, I've watched when I'm fishing these fish on dry flies, I don't even use floating because I've watched them swim up to my fly. Like they were going to eat it and turn off and uh turn away and i i think it's because you know you're not it's not like your dry fly is drifting really fast in uh in current and the trout's coming up from underneath and and smacking it this fish is sort of working its way across a still surface towards your fly and he's got a lot of time to taste and smell whatever's coming off of it so um you know unless unless you want to scent it with something that they love to eat like soak it in corn juice or uh put vanilla they love vanilla 
I don't. That's but the joke about why they're all by the sewage outflow, eating the corn flies for the Korean guys. Yeah, because the corn comes out of the sewage. Yeah, plant. <laughs> yeah that's exactly right. Um, so uh, you know, you can certainly flavor scent your flies if you want. I don't. I try to keep all of it off. But I do know that things like uh, head cement and stuff, you can see it. You can see the difference in their behavior. So I would try to avoid that if I could. And you'll notice actually uh, with all the flies in my book that very few of them call for any head cement. They just whip finish five times or what three times or whatever, and then um, call it call it good. And you can just get on tie some flies. I'm surprised to see that amnesia line is an ingredient in a couple of flies in there. Yeah, it, that's funny. There's well, and actually, I think that started with uh, with Trevor's um, trouser worm. He uses amnesia for the body, and uh, and a lot of other guys started using it too. Um, you know, Trevor ties a foam trouser worm that is perilously close to being a jig. I'm not sure where the line between fly and not fly go- <laughs> stands. And I love Trevor. He's a good friend of mine. I, I Actually, he's one of the guys I met down in, in, uh, in Nebraska. So he wouldn't balk at me saying this. But that is a fly made out of uh, punched out foam rings that are strung on a piece of monofilament that are then lashed to a hook for a tail and then amnesia is used to is tied up to the bead chain uh eyes and uh um in front of the bead chain eyes is a reversed bead um so that it's way to the front of your hook and that's the whole fly that is really close to just using a rubber twister tail yeah and speaking of bead chain have you ever been to bead chain Com. I did not even know it existed. In fact, I would so, be nervous about getting that in my search history. I have <laughs> I have a 150-foot spool of size 10 B-chain. Nice. Um, I paid 30 bucks on Amazon through their store. Nice. And, yeah, I just I just clip it off when I need, you know, I'll cut like 20 yep. sections off. And I've not even made a dent in this thing. You can go down to, like, your local Home Depot or whatever and just buy long sections. Yeah, it's off that, that big plastic spool. Yep. You can get one of those for 30 bucks online. That's crazy. The one thing about those is they it, it, that stuff does rust. Uh, no, mine have not at all. Oh, well, I know. I've used it fresh and salt. and The problem is you just got to cut them all. Yeah. You sit down and cut them in a Ziploc bag. Oh, good. Because they tend to, like, shoot off. Yeah, yeah. I've had and that. And do it in a Ziploc bag and the, pew, pew in the bag. That's a good idea. So just stick them right in the bag, stick your pliers right in there and cut them. Yeah. Did you, did you, I've wore out a pair of wire cutters cutting those, um, but, uh, because I've cut so many of them, but yeah, bead chain's great. Hell, some guys are putting like seven or eight bead chains on there as like a rattle. I kind of like bonefish flies. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it may work. Hell, that's the cool thing about carp fishing, guys, is we don't know where the best carp water in the U.S. is. I mean, we just don't know. It could be someplace that's already it's... been fished and it may have never even been, been discovered yet. We don't know what it's like comparing the best burgers in America. Everyone's got like their different take on it. And- That's right. And we've got, uh, you know, as far as the best flies go, I've got 101 patterns that, that I absolutely produce, but God, in 15 years, they may consider all of those to be relics. And the real good carp flies are these, you know, I mean, it's an evolving sport. So you get to, it's cool, man. I mean, it's kind of like if you had this fantasy where, like, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but I've had this fantasy of, like, God, can you imagine if you were the only guy on North America who knew about fly fishing and you had your gear um, and, like, all, all the water was unspoiled, none of the fish had ever been fished to. 
Um, and there was fish just everywhere because this is before we all settled it and screwed everything up and cut down all the forests and stuff. That'd be awesome. Well, that's sort of what you're doing with carp. I mean, granted, there's people around and the water, you know, and, and the forests have been cut down, but the fish don't care. They're there in abundance and no one has fished for them. So it's kind of cool. You get to be in a real explorer. I mean, shit, the fly fishing for carp that me and Larry and Mike Medina and McTagg Tanner did on the McConaughey Reservoir two weekends ago in Nebraska, which is a massive reservoir, that may have been the first time that 20,000-acre reservoir had ever been fly fished for carp. It's probably That's nuts. So you get this cool opportunity to be like, I'm the only one who's ever done this. And, uh, um, and the fish, you know, I mean, Good night. It, um, they don't know enough to be someday, it, you know, they may be scared of a fly line right now. They're not, they don't know enough to be scared of a fly line yet. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty rad to get out and, and, and do some exploring. And, and if you're a business traveler or whatever, you know that wherever you're going, there are carp somewhere. So you can bring your rod and Phoenix has got great canals for fly fishing and Las Vegas has got great carp fly fishing in, in, in urban pond. Yeah. Dave Maynard from uh, Real Fanatics at ICAST there, he caught like a 15-pound mirror carp, I don't know, a mile and a half from the convention center? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know you know that wherever you're going, uh, with a little research online, you can probably locate carp water. And there's not enough carp guys right now And uh, to – how about this? There's so much carp water right now that there's very few guys who are like – super protective and won't tell you their spots you tell somebody hey i'm coming you know i'm coming to uh um uh shit, i don't know omaha anybody know any good carp water and if larry or one of his crew that live in omaha see it they're gonna tell you oh hell yeah we'll take you there when can you meet you know what i mean so it's, now, it's my case when i went to florida as client tpfr patrick will tell you everything i found was like either private yeah. or gated or something else. Yeah. And that happens a lot. That does happen a lot. And you, so, it, you know, it does help to get a little local intel about what, where you can access and where you can't, or, um, sometimes you just hop a fence and ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. So I want to interrupt Frazier crane fly now is on the other side of the fish tank. Really? <laughs> He's about 18 inches away from where he was last That's time. That's nuts. Yeah, I didn't know crane flies moved. I didn't either. That actually makes me rethink the way I have fished nymphs in the past. Well, while we were talking, a mayfly crawled up the glass to the top. And I was like, sweet, dude, it's going to hatch. And then it just let go. like, And, the, and it, it free dove down along the, the seam of the corner of the tank. Head first, it just just sank straight down and then crawled off and hit the bottom. What? No idea what that was about. Now, do your fish don't try to eat those things? I've been watching the mosquito fish. He's been looking at the crane fly. Um, he better not eat my shrimp because the shrimp are my favorite of all of them. Because I know they're not going to hatch and fly away. They're in there for good. Were they tough to get? No, you just flip over rocks. Well, the creek had, uh, right before Christmas, they had stocked like you know 4,000 trout in this topway spillway in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. Yep. Very urban area. Yep. And then there was a water main break, so all that chlorinated water rushed in and killed literally everything. Ugh. And I even went above that, and I couldn't find – there were crest bugs. You used to flip over a rock, and you had your choice of what crest bugs. Like I've got macro pictures on my websites. I used to just go down there with like a white plate and just put them in there and take pictures. 
it took me an hour to find three scuds. Oh my! But t- today they're everywhere in the Upper Potomac, or I say Middle Potomac River. Just you find them on the bottom of just from flipping rocks, you're finding them. Yeah, they just move sideways. <laughs> they look like so. I had this uh, AP history teacher, and he said that. Um, the reason that doors should never open into hallways is because in high school he was running down and then the bell rang. He was running through the halls and someone opened the door into the hallway and hit him and he had a seizure and he was running in circles on the floor on his side. <laughs> and that's exactly what these scuds do. I've seen Homer when you Simpson. pick up the rock, they just spin in circle on their sides. I've seen Homer Simpson do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know just exactly what you're talking about. I've seen, you know, I've come out of, I've put, putting duck decoys out and, uh, um, in these small sloughs and stuff, in these shallow sloughs, and I have come out of the water, and my waders were just like coated in shrimp. I mean, just covered in them. It was kind of creepy. It was a little bit like a nightmare to have you know pants covered in shrimp. But um, uh, it's amazing, man. Those things are really cool. And I'll tell you, uh, mystery snails. Yeah, I have mystery snails. They do not like when you put your clear cure goo UV light on them. Really? Yeah, he um, he went back into his shell, like pushed out like twenty bubbles, and just sank to the bottom. Wow! And I was just like, I just wanted to see if he would glow. Did he? And it, he was pissed. Did he glow? Yeah, he's also got the biggest wiener you've ever seen. <laughs> I had to look it up. Yeah. I thought barnacles had like big ones compared to their body size. It'd be like if ours were four feet long. Yep. Um, but yeah, this snails man, his is like one and a half times his body length. Holy crap! It's he's a yellow snail, so it's like I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I'll put it in on Instagram next time he's got one. <laughs> like, dude, put a book in front of it. <laughs> Come on, man, be discreet, would you? This isn't this isn't a, uh, a another estrogen problem, is it? They're not getting no. bigger wieners from the estrogen. I don't know, but yeah, so I've got a blue mystery snail. His name is You're My Boy Blue. <laughs> of course, it is. Yeah, and then I've got uh, a spotted one and a striped one, which I haven't even named yet. But so I, there's a, a lake down the street, Burke Lake. It's the heaviest, most heavily fished location in the, the in Virginia. But it, apparently, it's by the dumbest fishermen because there's still like tons of muskie and walleye in there. And we were at the boat ramp. I was with my daughter's other play date, and her brother has had a fish empty fish tank for two years. So I grab him two Japanese trapdoor snails. They're huge. Well, it just happened to be, they're not hermaphrodites. One was a male, one was a female. And I'll get texts from his mom and be like, seriously, I woke up this morning, there were 18 more snails in there. <laughs> there's like 30, in, in two weeks, there's like 38 snails. And these things are, they'll fit in the palm of your hand. Oh, they're big. Andrew, yeah, Andrew Zimmern was eating them on Bizarre Foods in Norfolk. Oh my God. Um, yeah, those things are, and they sell them for five bucks a pop at the pet store. Yeah. And I told that kid, I was like, Bennett, man. You got 36 snails times five bucks? Yeah, that's a pile man, of money. Can... Yeah, man, Craigslist. Oh. <laughs> well, he's got to make sure he keeps the male and the female, though. Yes. I, uh, I took my daughter and two of her friends fishing last weekend, um, and uh, it was, it was uh, man, that was a riot. And they, they, the two friends, Ella has fished quite a bit, my daughter, but her two friends had never been fishing before, and we were just chucking bait. They were fishing under bobbers. But man, we just tore it up. They caught catfish and pike and bass and sunfish and bluegill. And I mean, they, they, they did, they did good, but holy cow, the squeals and the screams and what, 
it started as, ooh, no, I won't touch it. Ooh, no, I don't want to hold it. Okay, can I touch it? All right, and then I put it back. And by the end, it was, I can bait my own hook and take it. They were catching them so fast, I couldn't get the fish off nice. fast enough for them to be satisfied. So pretty soon, they're baiting their own hooks. They're taking their own fish off and throwing them back. It was awesome. It was really cool. But now I'm sure it's illegal as hell, but I, I did think, God, it'd be fun. to. We got this empty tank. I thought, it'd be fun to take a couple of these bluegill back and put them in the fish tank. Yeah, I always wanted to do that, but now I realize they eat all my invertebrates. They would. The invertebrates. I would I would love to grow like a two-pound bluegill. Wouldn't that be cool? Just feed it like ground beef. <laughs> Spam. Then you could take a sweet picture yeah. of yourself holding it and put it on Instagram. Spam, by the way, is a fantastic bait for kids. Catch a lot of turtles. Yeah. But spam is really, yeah. Well, that's it. We were just fishing night crawlers and minnows. Ugh, I, I can't deal with the, the poops from the worms. Oh, uh, I don't. That doesn't bother me. What does bother yeah. me is leeches. Oh. I got two of those in the tank. I don't know where they are. Oh, right there. See, that would, I'm not going to sleep tonight because you said that because I'm going to imagine <laughs> that maybe they're in my room. Oh, man. I hate those things. Ugh. As long as they can't go upstairs. <laughs> I don't think they can. <laughs> Unless they're stuck to you right now. I hope not. I, there was an ant on my leg. I threw it in the tank to see if the fish would eat it. Did they? No, I don't know where he went. Yeah. Yep. Something will get it. Something will get it. Um, that Hel- Helger might eventually get pretty voracious, I think. That's when I'm going to kick him out. Because I had one when I was a high school teacher. I had like two five-inch long Helger mites and noticed all my shrimps were disappearing. And I was like, all right, you guys are going back to the creek. <laughs> yeah, those things are scary. And then my a-hole students were like, you know, I come in from lunch and there'd be like half a bagel or like, a, you know, a package of like ramen in the fish tank or Christmas was candy canes. Why? Because they were just obnoxious kids. Just jerks, huh? Yeah. What grade did you teach? Nine to 11, but the kids aged 13 to 20. Oh, interesting. I had a 15-year-old girl married to a 24-year-old guy. Nope. Nope. That's... And her parents signed off on that. that. Can't be real. No. Yeah. She's like, I can't take the test on Friday. We're moving. Oh, I was like, I was like, uh, this is just so wrong. Oh my gosh. I, like, what does he tell his coworkers? Yeah. Sorry. My wife can't come out to happy hour. She's 15. Oh my God. That's just crazy, dude. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that's, uh, you're not dealing with that shit anymore. Are you? No, that's, I get, I get some pretty, pretty interesting clients. Yeah. Always good stories. Every day is different. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yep. Yep. So, um, I don't know, man. That's all I got. All right. Well, we'll end it at the two hour mark. Is that where we're at? Two hours is good, right? Two hours and six minutes. That's all right. That's not bad. Not at all. Um, oh yeah. I'm on Instagram and I'm also on Facebook. Plug it all. Plug it, plug it, plug it, plug it. You guys can find it if you want. My Instagram is DC Frazier and my Facebook is Dan Frazier. That's Frazier's just spelled like, just, just exactly like your critter is F-R-A-S-I-E-R. Um, but I just put up pictures of me with fish. So unless you, you know, it gets pretty boring. It's just pictures like, no. So I got a buff in that Costa Del Mar gift bag Mm -hmm. and I kept looking at the pattern. I'm like, this looks really familiar. My wife has this random, like cluttered vase from, I don't know where the same pattern. Really? So I I took a picture of that and posted it. Yeah. It's over my face. And then except the, the it's vertical on the vase and it's horizontal on the buff weird but yeah i'm mostly posting like aquarium pictures and videos now nice nice yeah um i just put up I'm, I'm i'm trying to learn how to take 
photographs. I mean, um, you know, I, I, obviously I do some writing for, you know, I've got stuff in the Drake and angling trade and, you know, write for American angler and stuff. Um, getting good photographs is just about as important to selling an article as getting, as being able to write intelligently. Um, so I'm trying to learn how to take real pictures. I went and bought a real camera. Um, I, I suck right now, but I'm just exposing everybody that follows me to that shit anyway. There you go. So we'll see. But yeah, man, that's all I got, bro. All right. And I literally just finished my can of beer. So, Ooh, was it delicious? Yeah. It was cold. Hmm. Good. I could use cold and cheap. All right. Well, I'm gonna go convert this to MP3 and set it off to Jason. All right, man. Right on. Well, thanks, Rob. Heck yeah, man. Thanks so much. Bet. I'll talk to you later on. I do. Later. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Media at freestone-media.com.